soy, the final frontier. I'm Comrade Britain. These are the voyages of the USS Different Trek, our ongoing mission to seek out new books, both based and extremely based, and to boldly go to buy this at the bookstore! Soy Trek the Podcast is here, one half vegan, one half queer, a hundred percent communist, unless we have a less leftist guest, not here, and but I'm here. Talking, joking, farting, and shitting all about Star Trek. Like our bottles, the show is wrecked. Soy Trek, the podcast is here. So listen to Soy Trek right in your ears. Oh, hello. Hello. Welcome to the bridge. I'm thrilled to be here. We uh, we have a guest today, and we have a, a not Pat episode today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? What's your name? Hi, my name is David Seitz, and I am an associate professor of cultural geography at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. I'm also the author of a different track, Radical Geography. Uh, this 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 wonderful book right here, uh, which is going to be the subject of our podcast today. So um, uh, when this book was coming out, um, you you told me about the book and uh, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned me in the book, which very flattering, by the way. And uh, also, I'm uh, friends with uh, the fo- person who did the cover of the book, um, Will Burroughs, great, great Trek artist and uh, merch maker. Uh, check them out at uh, wheelburrows.art. Um, and so uh, I was like, you know what? I want to read the shit out of that book. And while I'm at it, you know, I can expense it to the podcast if I end up doing an episode on it. And so uh, this is a tax avoidance scheme right here, as much as it is an interview. Um, not not really. But um, so uh, it's great to have you on. Um, yeah. Um, Besides the introduction, is there anything else you want folks to know about, like your background with Trek and uh, or anything like that? Like, how how did you get into Trek in the first place? I guess. Or I I think like a lot of people, I grew up with my family. Mm-hmm. My, my father had been really into the original series, and then he got me into the next generation. Mm-hmm. I still remember um, the there are four lights why a chain of command yeah yeah live on tv mm-hmm. you know when I, when I was like five and being so freaked out by the torture scene but i i sort of in later in elementary school had this sort of moment with voyager in ds9 mm-hmm. then kind of put it on pause again and then in grad school just started re-watching deep space nine and realizing oh holy shit like there's there's so much more here than my child's mind could could appreciate Mm-hmm. But I feel I feel like a whole generation of people kind of feel that way. So. Yeah, very, very much so. And um, so if I'm to understand correctly, you're a Star Trek professor and you teach Star Trek classes? I teach one class okay. um, called Star Trek and Social Theory at Harvey Mudd. I've been thinking about changing the title to Star Trek Race, Gender, and Class just to give the goods away a little bit more fair, explicitly. Fair. Um, how, how do you end up with a gig like that? 
That's a great question. So I I was on the academic job market, which you know I think you have a sibling who's an academic in the in the mm. social sciences, so you probably know very well how rough that can be, you know. Um, but I you know so I just blanketed the market. I was applying and applying, applying for three years. I was like a precarious academic worker, which is like how most teaching gets done at universities now. Mm-hmm. And I applied for something like 40 jobs my third year on the market. Holy shit. And I didn't even remember that it applied to Harvey Mudd. Mm-hmm. But um, it's this unique school that blends kind of science and engineering education mm-hmm. with a kind of liberal arts and critical thinking oriented education. Mm-hmm. So the idea is really that like we should be producing scientists and engineers who actually think about what the hell they're doing and what the consequences of it are for people um, rather than just sort of serving capital kind of without thinking about it. Um, So, yeah, it's an interesting premise. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about when it works and when it doesn't in execution. (laughs) podcast. But, um, you know, I was I was you know, I've been doing a little bit of writing on Star Trek in kind of cultural studies, like on the side of my other research. Mm -hmm. But I never really thought it would go anywhere in terms of my teaching or even my my research really be on an article or two. Um, But then I thought, oh, this is a STEM school like like they're nerds like they love Star Trek. What if I use this to sort of teach with? And I did that in my teaching demonstration and I got the job. Um, and so then there was a lot of enthusiasm about parlaying this into a class, which is what happened. So, so, so what you're saying is the Dean was a Trekkie. <laughs> I don't know if the Dean was a Trekkie, but, but there, my, my current department chair, my, my outgoing department chair definitely was a Trekkie. And nice. I think nice. We'd love to have a Trekkie boss. It makes things easier. Right. Yeah. You know, so um, I got to get something out of the way here. So the, the subtitle of this book is Radical Geographies of Deep Space Nine. And I, I've looked into it a bunch, and I think I understand it, but I'd love to hear it from a professor who actually teaches it. What are radical geographies? For sure. So, so geography was really revolutionized by Marxism as a tradition of critical social scientific explanation starting yeah. in the 1960s, um, I think there was an increasing emphasis on um, understanding that the world, uh, that space, you know, in both a material sense and, and an ideological sense, like maps and the way that we represent the world, are, are actually in the ongoing, pro- constantly um, in the ongoing process of being produced and reproduced in ways that um, serve particular uh, interests, serve particular economic interests, or particular social interests. So if space is made, um, if space is made in ways that often, you know, serve the state, serve capital, um, that also opens up the possibility that space could be made differently. So I think a classic example is um, sort of thinking about the gentrification of urban space. Like, what are the terms on which space is being produced for whom? I mean, I think one of you worked at a Whole Foods, or maybe both of you. So well, you bo- know that both of us, yeah. Yeah, um, like 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 what what is the type of consumer right who is being catered to in the actual production of space? What does that mean in a in a society where consumer power is so unevenly distributed? Mm-hmm. We can also think about it on an intersocietal scale. So um, you know. Uh, uh, Walter Rodney puts this really brilliantly in, in the book. You know how Europe underdeveloped Africa, right? That mm-hmm. that 
the fact that there are spaces of wealth and spaces of inequality, th those aren't unrelated phenomena. They're actually kind of need to be understood in critical and dialectical relationship to one another, um, rather than saying, oh, you know, there's happened to be a bunch of rich countries over here and happened to be a bunch of poor countries over here, thinking about um, the sort of formative role of colonialism in capitalist development. Um, and what that opens up is the possibility that people, ordinary people, working people, poor people, racialized people, could produce space um, according to different sets of authorities than the than the ones that are that are capital driven. So um, I think since the '60s, since Marxism has become a more attractive tradition of explanation in the field, um, you've really seen geography proliferate as this kind of place where you can do critical social science work, Black geographies, Latinx geographies, queer and trans geographies, feminist geographies, abolition geographies, as Ruth Gilmore talks about them. Uh, it's it's an exciting time, I think, to be a, a critical geographer or a radical geographer. Yeah, that's cool as hell. Like, uh, you know, going through college and like taking geography classes, you know, almost 20 years ago now. I never heard about anything like that. It seems to be like an emerging field. And, you know, as we know, applying Marxism to anything makes it rock. And so, like, I'm excited that we have, like, you know, geography with Marxism applied now. It's uh, it's fascinating to me. So, yeah, David Harvey, Neil Smith, Ruth Gilmore, you know, the foundations of our field, really people who are thinking on, on Marxist terms. So. Hell yeah, we love to see it. So uh, you wrote a book about the radical geographies, specifically of Deep Space Nine. Why did you choose Deep Space Nine? Um, I mean, the, the glib answer is because it's the best one. <laughs> but but I, think, I think Deep Space Nine is enormously attractive for geographers, precisely because it's the only Star Trek that's really placed-based mm -hmm. uh, and can't get away from kind of the consequences of political actions the way that you can when you're just on a sort of starship, you know, glistening about the galaxy and intervening in this society here and breaking the prime directive there and then leaving people behind. You know, th th there's a sense in which you're kind of stuck with each other. And um, I know that was one of the principal complaints about Deep Space Nine, but I think it's ultimately why it is often regarded, and I think rightly regarded as the most radical. Yeah, and in the book, I want to say you include a quote, I want to say it's from Michael Piller, but I might be wrong, um, it, about... Uh, the fact that all other Star Treks, uh, you have a ship that goes somewhere. And so at the end of the episode, the ship goes away. Whereas if we, with Deep Space Nine, you have a physical location where every action you have has a consequence that comes back down the line. And uh, like, including that quote, like blew my mind. I'd never read it before, uh, but I'd read something kind of similar from Iris Stephen Bear. But uh, that, that pillar, I think it was just like wrecked me. And I was like, damn, highlighting it and putting a note tab in there. Yeah, it was an uncanny moment for me seeing that pillar quote in um, the book that I found it in, because um, you know, for geographers, John Berger, who's sort of like a Marxist thinker on aesthetics, is also very influential, and he has a great line about how it's space, not time, that hides consequences from us. And so, seeing it in the pillar, you know, archive, and then seeing it in the in the kind of geography theory world, I was like, oh my gosh, this, this, these they're talking to each other without even realizing it. Yeah, hell yeah. So. Um... Your book starts on a story about Nichelle Nichols and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a story that I'm sure pretty much every Trekkie's heard before. You know, uh, she was thinking of quitting Star Trek for a lot of reasons, William Shatner included. And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, she said at an NAACP meeting, um, 
basically told her no like you are a symbol to like all the young black girls and just black people everywhere that like the future is black you know to paraphrase um so uh you found a discrepancy in where we think they met and the speech she heard king give why don't you tell us a little bit about uh what we're told and what you found out yeah, you know, um, Nichols was always a bit demure about the particular occasion for their meeting. She would say things like, um, I think it was an NAACP meeting. I can't really remember, you know. Um, she was a bit cagey about that. But um, Brian Cronin, who's an entertainment journalist of sorts, um, he, in maybe 2013, um, went back and looked at her schedule and the Star Trek shooting schedule and then looked at King's travel schedule. And what he noticed is that at the moment in, I think it's like January or February of, of um, 1967, when they would have actually had occasion to meet would most likely have been at the Beverly Hills Hilton where King was giving a speech to the Nation Institute. Mm -hmm. um, it was called the Casualties of the War in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. This was kind of this trial run for um, the, the more famous and, and for some infamous beyond Vietnam speech that he gives in early April of right, right. Um, you know, the Riverside Church where he's just like totally blasting uh, U.S. imperialism in Vietnam. And so, you know, we have this beautiful story about Nichols, this really important story about the centrality of her contribution to um, the Black freedom struggle, you know, by appearing on Star Trek and, and imagining this future where, um, you know, Africa is not colonized, Af you know, I mean, like Africa is sort of sovereign and produces these brilliant and beautiful linguists and leaders like Nyota Uhura. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think that that we, we deepen our appreciation of that contribution when we realize that it's tied to the black radical traditions, anti-war and pro-labor, um, as well as anti-racist messages. And I, I think many people know that, but or, or on an intuitive level, they, they vibe with it. But the liberal way that that story gets told reduces it to one of representation without connecting it to the broader politics. Um, uh, radical politics coming out of the black radical tradition that that inform the demand for representation. Right. And I, I love how you said after this that uh, you saw this as the first major intervention in the universe of Star Trek uh, that brought it beyond, uh, you know, just the the diverse social aspect of the show. Um, yeah, that, that was great. So. Uh, further in the introduction, you make an argument that Deep Space Nine can be read as prophetic critiques of 1990s politics and its consequences that we're now seeing come to fruition, which uh, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, what are some of the issues or their analogs that you think the writers have been fully vindicated on at this point? I think the biggest one is probably the... Um you know, the, the notion of the end of history, the end of class struggle, this idea that, you know, capitalism won once and for all when the Soviet Union fell. Mm -hmm. I think you see that in DS9's, um, you know, reading of the Rodney King uprising in so many episodes in the pilot, in past tense, mm -hmm. you know, are beyond the stars, mm -hmm. all of which respond directly to that to that uprising. Um, reading that as a legitimate form of protest against racial capitalism instead of just chaos and, and wanton destruction. I think you see it in their remarkable attention to labor issues and the unionization of the service industry, right? In mm -hmm. a kind of 
industrial, you know, we've gone from Terak Nor to Deep Space Nine, and this isn't an ore processing plant anymore. The way that parallels kind of the hollowing out of manufacturing in the U.S. by free trade and the way that intellectuals like Francis Fukuyama are sort of legitimating uh, that, that kind of capitalist vision of things. Um, DS9 is saying, no, like, like service industry work matters, people have dignity, labor matters, and class struggle is not over. Um, I think you can see it to a lesser extent in some of the critical commentary on incarceration in an episode like Hard Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't think I don't think DS9 is sort of fully abolitionist, let's say, in, in that regard. I, I don't but, feel like any Star Trek has reached okay. a stage of abolition at this point. You know, no matter what, they still have the prison colony in Australia. And as long as they're calling it a prison colony, it's it's a prison colony, you know, like, come on. And like, but thinking about both words in that term being in interconnected ways. One thing I don't know if you noticed, but uh, recently, I think on the first season of Strange New Worlds, they had a uh, Vulcan um, carceral arrangement, and they called it a rehabilitation colony, which I actually appreciated, at least for the verbiage. I don't know exactly how it's run or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that a good bit. That's fascinating, and the, the Vulcans. Um, get positioned in so many different ways. The Vulcans don't show up a lot in Deep Space Nine, so I don't think about them outside of a footnote, but sure. but they, they they are positioned as analogs to different formations on Earth in, in, in different, you know, in different moments. So it sounds a little Scandinavian, that. Yeah. A little bit, yeah, 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 you're not wrong. So um, DS9 hit the mark on a lot of great social issues, but do you think there were any social or cultural issues they really missed the mark on? Um, I think the most obvious one is probably the handling of um, trans issues, let's say, in profit and lace. We don't talk about profit and lace on this podcast. <laughs> this is a LGBTQ plus podcast. That episode never existed. Um, I, I think that, yeah, we can we can just bracket that. Um, I also, and one thing we might talk a little bit more about, though, is the... Um, I think there's a certain optimism surrounding the liberal girl boss capitalism can fix <laughs> capitalism, you know, mm-hmm. story that um, I think we can we can approach in different ways and, and try to think about, you know, the contradictions of that. But that's that's one that I, you know, is a question mark for sure. Absolutely. So. Also in your introduction, you point out a seeming dearth of academic works when it comes to Deep Space Nine. And you actually did the research and found that comparatively to other 90s Star Trek, other like Berman Trek, except for Enterprise, obviously, um, DS9 has the least academic research and the least academic articles. Why do you think that is? Oh, I think that... The immediate answer that comes to mind is precisely that it is space and that it challenges kind of the mobile breezy optimism of of a shit based show. Um, if I'm being honest, I think anti blackness also plays a role. I mean, I think that you know the scholars who took DS9 seriously before anybody else were black studies scholars, mm-hmm. um, and you know I think that's worth underscoring at a moment when black studies, black thought, critical race theory, intersectionality are are under attack. That you know everything that I do in the book, you know I am the first monograph to talk about DS9, but it wouldn't be possible with all this other scholarship, articles, book chapters, Afrofuturist scholars like Andre Carrington to to name a few. 
Um, but I think Deep Space Nine is profoundly challenging in, in ways that, um, it's not that the others don't contain moments of challenge, but I think, I think people just tend to bracket Deep Space Nine for fear it's going to complicate things too much, which I welcome, but, you know, yeah, I think that's what's happened a lot of the time. Indeed. Makes sense. Um, so in this book, there are six chapters, each dealing very fully with a subject that's an analog for how things were maybe seen in the 90s. Um, when Deep Space Nine was made and how they're very much the same or worse now. So let's just jump right into the first chapter here. So in the first chapter, it deals entirely with Benjamin Sisko, Captain Sisko, or Commander Sisko, if you only watch the first couple seasons, uh, and several episodes surrounding him. So let's talk about the actor Avery. Brooks, because I think uh, to get to know the character, knowing the actor is very important, especially in this case, because he brought a lot of himself into the role. Uh, what are some of the things that you think he brought from his life into the role on the show as both a series lead and occasional director? That's a great question. I think um, probably the first and foremost thing to emphasize is his connection to Paul Robeson, mm -hmm. right? The great um sort of singer actor athlete lawyer and communist activist um uh shana redmond um, has a really brilliant book on paul robeson called everything man um avery brooks follows in robeson's footsteps uh, robeson was one of the first uh black students to go to rutgers um and, and and a star athlete at rutgers as well as a brilliant student avery brooks is i think the first black person to earn an mfa in theater from rutgers oh, wow. uh, and, and then go on to teach there as a tenured theater professor mm -hmm. um but he's also played um robeson on stage since 1979 um, and so this is someone who knows black history very well, knows um, sort of the history of the, the um, intellectual McCarthyism and the way that that came to crack down on black radicalism in the United States very well, because that is Robeson's, you know, story is one of being blacklisted um, for being a communist. And, um, you know, only only in the 70s and then after his passing, kind of having a critical revaluation. Um, Brooks is someone who, who you know, really thoughtfully evokes um, African and African-American intellectuals um, and radicals, Canada Lee, Chinua Achebe, Cornell West, um, Denmark Vesey, you know. Um, he says, you know, in, in his interview with William Shatner, which is so fun to watch because Shatner cannot keep up. Um, uh, on uh, the, the, the film, I The Captains. Know. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. It's amazing. It's so good. You know, he says, I come from great people. Uh, so he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly whose shoulders he stands on as a as a black artist and intellectual. Um, and he's very clear that you know, I mean, his father comes out of the the labor movement. His you know, his family, um, you know, I think his mother's a music educator. His father's a tool and dye maker and a union steward. They come out of the Mississippi Delta, moved to Indiana. He's in Indiana, you know, during, um, uh, you know, Jackson 5 comes out of Indiana, the the, the black um, political convention in Gary is happening, I think in 72, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, so he's coming out of this kind of really, really intellectually and politically rich environment and tradition of black radicalism. And, and he, he doesn't distance himself from that when he's playing someone in the, in the 21st century, he's, he's, he's tremendous continuity. And so that's, that, you know, really, is, I think it's the reason why we see such continuity, um, on the screen. 
absolutely and in his directing too you know the few episodes of the series he directs are especially uh, far beyond the stars they're just amazing and far beyond the stars in itself is in my opinion the most groundbreaking and pro- maybe the most important episode of star trek like altogether uh i i could see the argument made for past tense as well but one of those episodes i think has been by far the most prophetic and deeply understanding of the world we live in now absolutely all of his episodes though i think are highly socially consequential you know i mean he does um uh, the Abandoned, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about when we talk about the Jem'Hadar. He does um, uh, Rejoined, right? The the kiss. Yeah, yeah. And he was so, and you can see this in the DVD special features, he was really um, careful in creating a safe space for Susanna Thompson and um, uh, Terry Farrell to explore that. You know, uh, he, he, he did not want to sensationalize it, but he wanted to take it very seriously. And, and so sort of the melancholy that attends that loss protects very seriously. Um, mm-hmm. So and then think about um, him and LeVar Burton, who did Bar Association. Mm-hmm. Black directors, not hugely represented in the director overall pool of DS9, but directing some of the most socially consequential episodes. Uh, oh, absolutely. And uh, LeVar Burton does, um, I believe, my favorite episode of the series, uh, Once More Into the Breach, which is, I, I'm, I'm a big core stand. I'm, I'm huge on... Uh, on Klingons. So, you know, the Klingon episodes are it for me. And like the way they deal with like Jed Zia's death and then like the process of aging is just beautiful. Gotta love Rondi Moore. Great, great writer. So, um, um, I'm not sure if I paraphrase you correctly here. So please correct me if I'm wrong. So in the book, you make the argument that because DS9 makes Cisco both a reluctant commander in a war that he ultimately sees as a job and a reluctant emissary to the prophets, it puts him in a unique and analogous position. Uh, can you speak on the role of how both duty and destiny shape Cisco, especially in the spirit of black radicalism? Absolutely. So I I sort of think of Cisco as having two bodies in the old fashioned political theory sense of the king having two bodies, right? One that's kind of divinely ordained, and then one is like their sort of earthly earthly body. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that matters because of his his two charges. He has this kind of secular federation charge, you know, go deal with the wormhole aliens, they say, go deal with the, you know, mm-hmm. and then, um, which, which he is, you know, he is not a Starfleet legacy. This is a job for him, you know. Um, and then uh, on the other hand, you know, this totally unexpected um, sort of theological charge from the prophets. But I don't think any other Starfleet captain really could have, um, certainly prior to him, really could have taken that on in the way that he did. That, that he, you know, I mean, Starfleet is often adamantly quite secularist and, mm-hmm. and, and hyper rational. But I think because of um, his connection to the Black freedom struggle and because of both the actors and the characters' historical consciousness, you know, and, and Brooks always said this in interviews, you know, that that spirituality plays a particular role in black struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find fascinating about Kai Opaka. That's what he said about the pilot, you know, that he's in a particular position to appreciate 
both what the Bajorans are going through as people who have just overthrown kind of colonial occupation, and also the particular role that the prophets play in guiding them to freedom. So, so, so that experience um, as a black man gives him a particular kind of um, empathy for, curiosity about, humility in relation to what the Bajorans are going that maybe more adamantly secularist or hyper-rational um, starkly interlocutors might, might not have. Um, and, you know, sometimes he acts as emissary really in excess or even at cross purposes with what Starfleet wants, you know, when it comes to putting the brakes on Bajoran, um, you know, entry into the Federation, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, so I think it has everything to do with um, with Black radicalism. I couldn't agree more. It uh, it's, it's a powerful analog that, like... After reading the book, especially the Cisco chapter, and like going back to some of those episodes, like you see it more, and uh, it's one of those like eye-opening things where you're like you see the current running through, not just the actions, but like the delivery of everything that Avery Brooks does, and it's pretty fascinating. So, in the Cisco chapter, you talk about the two-part episode past tense, uh, which folks might know as the Bell Riots episodes. Um, where uh, Cisco uh, basically goes back in time and has to pose as Gabriel Bell to become a leader of riots that set off basically a transformation that transformed the world into a better place. Um, Yeah, so what are uh, some of the ways they dealt with the issues of homelessness in that episode that you see as current realities? That's a great question. I think um, I've been really influenced by, and you know, I cite in the in the book, but I, I don't discuss as much as I maybe could. But the work of um, my my colleague Deshanae Dozier, who's at one of the other Claremont schools, who wants us to think about um, what's carceral about places like Skid Row, who wants us to think about the kind of reach of the carceral state into the shelter system. Um, and the way that that sort of structures and, um, you know, often tries to extract profit from the mm-hmm. lives on house people. So I think that I think that there's something about those sanctuary districts that really anticipates um, it responds to things that were happening in L.A. and being proposed in the in the 1990s. But it also anticipates, I think, the degree of criminalization. Um, you know, that that we sort of see um, affecting unhoused folks um, Mm -hmm. today. I also think that um, the broader problem, you know, um, has has deepened because of things like the 2008 crash and certainly um, the economic crisis and the kind of uneven Mm -hmm. geography of and recovery of um, COVID. So I don't, it's not like a happy thing to say, oh, it's prescient, but I think it it really is. I mean, I think... um, you know, there's a disciplinary function to having an unhoused population that's so visible for the for the rest of us. It's like a reminder, like this is what can happen if you don't if you don't keep working. Right, right. If it's it's really the reality of what happens if we just keep on doing exactly what we're doing. You know, letting uh, economic disparity run rampant. And uh, the big thing, the big question I think the episode asks that is something we really need to ask ourselves today is how do we centralize houseless services without creating a concentration camp? Because, you know, um, the the sanctuary, or not the sanctuary cities, the, um, I'm so, totally blanking, the, uh, 
the the areas where they cordon them off, uh, the homeless folks in in past tense, are uh, basically just concentration camps. And now we're seeing things with. Um, you know, uh, like the, uh, fucking, they're trying to do it here in Seattle. They're trying to build like the the tiny home camps, but they're like fenced in, like a prison, and they have, um, you know, like times you can come and go, like a pri- It's 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 like a low security prison, more or less, and uh, it's it's just not the right solution. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, in as much, do you think the Bell riots are coming in 2024? Or do you think it's going to take a, a little longer? Um, I, without ever wanting to naturalize the loss of life that leads to the Bell riots in the in the narrative, there's a there's an accelerationist part of me that certainly hopes so. You know, I think. Um, I mean there was so much in 2020 that felt so propitious and so revolutionary and so much happened that year to kind of curb that. And, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a hot labor summer, so it's not like it's all gone away, all that revolutionary energy, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm sort of curious what else will um, stir, stir people out of the kind of malaise we're in now. I did just hear that the Haymarket Socialism Conference um, coming up in Chicago in September actually has more registrants, I think, don't quote me on this, but maybe has more registrants this year than ever before. So there, awesome. that, that is, you know, something to something to look forward to. I, you know, maybe instead of everything being pooled into Bernie, it'll it's in like lots of little movements and lots of little corners of the labor movement that yeah. sort of left is coalescing so yeah and you know bernie was i think the last uh chance for an actual left movement that we had in this country um but you know all of that momentum still exists just in disparate pockets is the only problem and you know there was one person to coalesce around at that point and we just we we just don't have that right now We, we don't have a figurehead we don't have like an idea we don't have a leader um so uh you know if you're listening to this and you want to lead the left needs leaders so, um, after past tense, uh, you discuss the magnificent episode that we talked a little bit about earlier, Far Beyond the Stars, uh, directed by Avery Brooks, um, and both Cisco and Avery Brooks's connection to it. Um, what do you think we can still learn from that episode? It's such a magnificent episode, and it's, it's impossible to watch it without just, like, falling apart, mm-hmm. crying, you know? Um, I think I wanted to just add a couple of layers to uh, its reception, you know, the, the, the discourse on its reception um, that I thought were missing in kind of the existing criticism. It's already obviously a very well-known episode, but mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to add a couple of layers because I think the way the story of Far Beyond the Stars usually gets glossed, it's a story about white liberal racism, which it very much is, and a story about police violence, which it very much is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of yes and that um, because there were a couple of other things that I, I noticed that were latent in some of the existing criticism, but very present in the episode that I thought were worth commenting on. And one is about black and black creative labor and also even women's, white, even white women's creative labor because they negotiate um, pay rates in mm-hmm. that episode. 
how many cents a word is Benny Russell going to make? How many cents a word does Kay make for her stories? You know, and so there's this whole racialized and gender division of labor and value that is just sort of exposed. And I think something very telling on that scene that you're talking about is the uh, the the person to make the highest amount in the office that actually says it is the Jewish guy. However. Uh, O'Brien's character, the Irish guy who writes simple stories about robots, doesn't mention his, I think implying that he makes the most out of any of them. So like, like think about the politics of trans, you know, wage transparency like that and, and, and how um, so many race and gender, you know, uh, wage equity issues are, are bound up with that. So it's, it's all right there. I also think, um, you know, it's mentioned only briefly, um, uh, Cassie Penny Johnson's character, mm -hmm. the, the lover of, of um, Benny Russell, that he started writing science fiction stories in the Navy. And um, just given, you know, I mean, the, the, the Navy was highly segregated until 1944 in terms of its basic division of labor. So hmm. what does it mean for this man who's being asked to, you know, um, maybe carry munitions or, or like be a cook or a steward <laughs> or clean a ship to be stealing away time to be imagining other worlds where, you know, Benjamin Sisko's are captains of stations like Deep Space Nine. There's there's a little bit of like defiance of um, kind of U.S. empire monopolizing all of his labor and all of his energy in that that I think is worth thinking about precisely because, um, you know, as Kimberly Phillips Bain teaches us, Black veterans were often the foot soldiers of the, the civil rights movement. People came back from World War II, they saw what, you know, what their labor had been harnessed to do, you know, in the war machine, which was in part to defeat fascism, which is hugely imperative. But then it's like, well, why can't we have our civil rights? Why can't we feed people? Why, you know, what else could, you know, what could we use this kind of peace dividend post-war to do if we would actually distribute the prosperity on truly ecumenically human terms? And I, I just saw like a kernel of that kind of beginning to be raised in the episode in ways that um, I didn't think the dominant reception, you know, as, as rightly glowing as it had been, I didn't, I didn't think had fully um, conveyed some of those, those rich layers of the, of the critique that the episode makes. So what I take out of that is we were definitely robbed of a second Benny Russell episode where he's in the Navy. That would have been fascinating. And yeah. if it had been a two-parter, maybe that arc could have been explored. Right, and then they could have, like, explored the parallels to being, like, you know, um, drafted into something. And basically what Cisco is drafted into a war because he can't escape because he's a religious, you know, emissary there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so continuing on, uh, in this book, you create a bridge between the Obama presidency and Cisco's tenure on Deep Space Nine. What are some of the forces outside of their control that you think changed both? This is a great question, because I think for all Cisco's misdeeds, both in, in the pale moonlight and elsewhere, like the Maquis. Before, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have more sympathy for Cisco than Obama, just because I think it's possible to read Cisco in two ways. It's possible to read Cisco as, you know, the commander in chief of the, you know, unified forces in the Alpha Quadrant defending against the Dominion. But it's also possible to read him as a rank and file black military worker who doesn't want to be here. 
you know, um, I, I, and, and with Obama, you know, I think DeWitt Kilgore and Brianna Gray are, are some of the first to point out that there's a sense in which a Cisco, something like a Cisco makes something like an Obama thinkable, you know, like the possibility of black leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, there is a hope that attends Cisco in his role as emissary that I think legitimately did attend Obama in 2008. I was not one of those smart leftists who could see from a mile away coming that he wasn't really anti-war. I, I felt for it. I wasn't either. No, I voted for Obama the first time. That was that was the first president I ever voted for. And so there uh, was that kind of structure of feeling, you know, that, yeah. that a lot of us participated in. Um, but then, you know, you see Obama both inherited in, but then also extended and expanded the war on terror in ways that I think he bears responsibility for. And I think mm-hmm. all of us who voted for him bear some responsibility for, you know, we can think about how unevenly distributed complicity is, but I think it, you know. Uh, I'm, I mean, you know, someone has to answer for Syria, Libya, <laughs> things like that, things that happened directly under his watch and he's not answering for them. You know, he's he's just making a bunch of apologies, which, you know, Yemen, uh, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And playlists. Oh, yeah. His his play. I, I appreciate that uh, someone he mentioned on his playlist uh, called him a war criminal. That was that 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 made my year. That was that was my playlist of the summer is Obama's war criminal. That was that was great. I And I think you all have said on the podcast that every president's a war criminal. And I I completely co I mean, yeah, every every living president and maybe every president ever. I I may I don't think I think Martin Van Buren might be might be safe, but pretty much every you know, if you do war, you're going to end up having war crimes under your watch, you know, especially if you're getting involved in places you don't want. Uh, and that don't need it. Uh, you know, basically every war but World War 2, let's be honest. Maybe the Civil War. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, not so many just wars in our lifetime. Um, so, in as much uh, bridging the gap between Obama and Cisco, who do you think was Obama's Garak? I love this question, and you know, this one I was really racking my brain about when I when I um, got got your questions the other night um, to prepare for this interview. The best answer I can come up with was to think about drone warfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to think about um, Samuel Moyne, who's a um, sort of leftist legal scholar, has this book on drone warfare, where he's really trying to think about how um, you know we we already know that kind of. Um, really since the since the church committee didn't get its way and like sort of undoing the CIA, you know, um, U.S. foreign policy has only gotten further and further away from any kind of democratic oversight or accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a way in which drone warfare and the way that it renders kind of, um, you know, these like murders or like bombing people's weddings, you know, um, more and more out of sight, out of mind, only accelerates that de-democratization of, of U.S. imperial foreign policy. It's a kinder, kinder, gentler warfare, you know. Precisely. Which uh, it, it's it's not good. I mean, the more we distance ourselves from the people we're killing, the more we existentially distance ourselves from the things that we're destroying. You know. Like, we're not just killing people, we're destroying lives, we're creating terrorists. Like, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not doing a good thing. Um, but yeah, I, I thought about this one for a long time, too, and I actually don't have an answer to Obama's Garak. 
I, I think in general, like, you know, intelligence services, in, in general, you know, people whispering in his ear, giving him sometimes the right, mostly the wrong ideas, and without question, always the most violent ideas. So, so uh, I think we can uh, wrap up Cisco for now. So let's get on to your second chapter here. So in your second chapter, you discuss Cardassian settler colonialism. A lot of people have compared this to a lot of things, and uh, frankly, a couple days ago on Reddit, I saw someone comparing it to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I know, yes, I, I also made that face. I, uh, I, I posted about it uh, and asked uh, if the U.S. is also the, the Cardassians in pretty much every conflict we're in. They, they didn't have good answers for that. So, um, what are some of the parallels you think that the writers were trying to draw at the time uh, in relation to the Cardassian settling and colonializing Bajor? It's interesting because if you, if you do a kind of superficial scan, you kind of get one answer, which is very kaleidoscopic. It's like a little bit Yugoslavia, a little bit Haiti, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But that, um, if you really drill down, you know, um, there's this there's this organization called the Haley Center. It's like an archive for television um, history. They have an office in New York and an office in LA. And I think most of their archives are now in New York. But I I got in under the wire right before they moved everything to New York, and I, I spent some time in their archives in in Beverly Hills in in 2019. Cool. And um, they used to do these. I think they still do them. These screenings of an episode for their audience, and then they'll do a Q and A after. And so they, they did this with a few episodes of DS9 in its first season when I think people were still kind of really trying to wrap their minds around what is this, what is this allegory supposed to be between the Bajorans and the, and the um, uh, Cardassians. And Michael Piller, you know, says, and, and his language is very interesting. He says, we saw parallels to Native American experiences, which is to say of settler colonialism and dispossession, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we saw parallels with um, Palestinian experiences and we saw parallels with the Israeli formation. Um, and so he names two peoples and then he names one um, sort of political event, historical mm-hmm. event. Um, and, you know, we know that um, the Palestinians, right, experience um, experience colonialism, right? That, like that's recognized by the UN, it's recognized by international law, you know, that there's settlement happening on land that is legally recognized as theirs. Um, and we also know that when the state of Israel was founded, that um, it resulted in the expulsion of half of half of the Israel's um, pre-war uh, Arab population. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not here to tell you like what's the solution, you know, <laughs> but like, like hundreds of thousands of people were displaced and lost their homes. Um, and um, you know, absolutely, I think Deep Six Nine takes very seriously anti-Semitism. It takes very seriously the Holocaust, and there is a lot of Holocaust allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, um, to this day, right, like most Jewish people reside outside of Israel and Jewish people have very different views of um, the state of Israel and its its actions towards the Palestinians. It's not it's not a monolith and it, and it is not inherently anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. So in the book, I try to lift up, um, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to Duet and to these episodes that are thinking about, um, you know, this is an allegory for for the Holocaust of Jewish people in Europe. Um, but I also really try to advance an extended reading of it 
um, as an allegory for for Palestine. Um, and I do that, you know, not because I'm bringing an agenda, you know, <laughs> I am bringing an agenda, but but I'm doing it because, it, you know, the writer said so, that they said that that's what they were doing. And I think, um, you know, I think they took political risks in admitting to that. Um, yeah. You know, the first intifada was happening in the late 80s and early 90s, and Rashid Khalidi, um, who's a Palestinian-American historian, sort of shows how, um, you know, the Palestinians were making themselves more sympathetic in the in the media on a global stage at that time because the use of force against them by the IDF was so obviously disproportionate. But this was, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that, I think things are changing a little bit now, but I think the equation of Palestinian with terrorist is still pretty firm in a lot of people's minds. And so I think the writers were taking a risk in sort of claiming some stakes that have affinity with Palestinian liberation and in, in, in these Bajor stories. And it's it's absolutely insane because, you know, there is the conflation between Palestinian or Hamas and, you know, uh, terrorist where you actually like look at the numbers and see how much destruction is going on on either side. And the destruction that Israel is waging on Palestinian territory and the Palestinian peoples is completely outsized. And it's all done with U.S. weapons that we give them that we call like, you know, military aid, but we just give them, give them rockets to blow people up. And that's where our tax dollars are going. That's why we can't have universal health care. A hundred percent. Any measure you look at, gross domestic product, maternal mortality. I mean, you are dealing with a first world society that is literally on top of a, a third world one. Oh, it's, and, it's an apartheid state. I, I, you know, if you look at the definition and you look at previous apartheid states, there's really nothing else to call it. It's a bummer. Um, so uh, let's move on to something equally as depressing. Um, so you talk uh, about the Maquis as well in this chapter. What parallels do you see in the plight of the Maquis versus that of the Bajorans in relation to Cardassian colonialism? I kind of read the Maquis in two ways. I think one is um, sympathetically, one is thinking about this as an inspiring, multiracial, kind of anti-imperialist formation, kind of the canaries in the mine against Cardassian imperialism. I think it means a lot that Ensign Rowe joins, although we know now from Picard that she later recounts that that hadn't come out yet when Did, I wrote that. Didn't love that. Not, not, not really into that. Um, so I think there's a lot to sort of recommend the Maquis. I think Voyager could have done a lot more with the Maquis. I know Ronald Moore has, has said as much in mm -hmm. interviews. Um, I, you know, I think the other reading that, that I do want to keep in mind, though, is is that they are they do kind of justify themselves in terms of a, a um, labor theory of property, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, Bill Samuels, I think the the I think this is in the Maquis, maybe part two, um, the the colonist who dies, you know, um, who who um, Cisco's old friend, um, uh, who I can see a space, uh, Cal Hudson. Yeah, you right, know, right, right, right. He says he put his he put his labor into the land and he was a farmer and, and like that becomes a justification for his sort of territorial claim. And there I think we're we're echoing John Locke in some uncomfortable ways because that, you know, that was how a lot of um indigenous dispossession in the US has been justified. There was this notion that indigenous people are incapable of agricultural cultivation, which was not true, mm -hmm. but that was the sort of story that was told to justify land theft. And so even though 
these Federation colonists that become the Maquis are supposedly settling on, on uninhabited planets. It just, it feels a little like, ooh, you know, like think about all the terraforming episodes where they end up discovering that there was somebody there all along. Like right. that, that gets a little uncomfortable. But um, so I, I think I couldn't really make anything super coherent of the Maquis one way or the other, but I wanted to lift up those two possible readings. Um, and I think there is a bit of affinity with the Bajorans in, in, in the first reading. Absolutely. So let's talk about Dukat. Gol Dukat, the fascist archvillain of Deep Space Nine and Cisco's ostensible foil. How do you read into his self-belief and do you see his moral compromises as perhaps analogs to more than just politicians we villainize? This is such a this is such an astute question. Um, you know, Dukat really frames his relationship to Bejar as one as this kind of noble, civilizing mission. Mm -hmm. If only they'd accept our superiority, we really could have helped them. Even though he's he ultimately gives the game away and admits that that the that the goal was full scale colonization all along, um, with every sort of genocidal implication that is entailed in that. Um, so, you know, when I was writing the discussion of Dukat in the book, I, I had people like um, Teddy Roosevelt and Bibi Netanyahu very explicitly at front of mind because they're such open, unabashed advocates for settler colonialism. Um, but, you know, in the back of my mind, and I appreciate your picking up on this, I, I remember thinking, you know, I think a lot of politicians probably feel that way, like a certain kind of contempt for the populations that they tell themselves that they're benefiting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the other connection you could make, um, not someone you or I would be a fan of, but someone that, you know, maybe more liberal DS9 fans might still somehow hold in some esteem is, someone like Bill Clinton, you yep. know, and I, mm -hmm. historians like Tom Frank show us that the Clintons and the DLC were pretty explicit with black voters and with the labor movement, you know, you guys have nowhere else to go. And like, that's a profoundly contemptuous thing to say to your, to your constituents as you sell them out. I mean, even if you look at like Clinton's multilateral trade agreements, like NAFTA, like he was doing active, how do I put this? almost active fascism in ensuring that certain regions of the world, mostly the global south, had lower wages. And he did so by incentivizing American companies to take all of their manufacturing over there, because guess what they have there? Lower wages. And in as much like it actually depresses a, uh, an economy and depresses the global economy because you're, you know, because of the, 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 um, the velocity of currency, like you don't have as much money going around there and you can't have post-industrial economies except in the global north. And um, yeah, so I, I, I do think, and I asked that question uh, to be provocative because I think we try to see all of the worst people we can think about in Gold Ducat, but ultimately there's probably something of even some people I like in Gold Ducat and a little Gold Ducat in them. You know, a, a certain, and it, it brings to mind, like, you know, every time I hear a liberal person um, disrespect the South in general, and, you know, they call them like rednecks or white trash or, you know, any kind of disparaging remarks like that because they believe that they're some sort of monolith and that they do have some kind of superiority in themselves over those people. And uh, it is like just unabashed elitism. And, you know, so when, you know, people in the South who are on the right, you know, accuse 
people of being coastal elites, I do understand what they're talking about, and they do have a point, you know? So... Ruth Gilmore teaches us that, you know, capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. So anytime you're naturalizing inequality, I think there is a there is a dimension of that happening and and it can look pretty weird. If you want an interesting book on that, um, Daniel Martinez, Hosang and Joe Lowndes have a book called Producers, Parasites and Patriots, and they've got a chapter on kind of weirdly eugenicist discourses on white trash and the way that people like Charles Murray, you know, who's always going after poor black people mm-hmm. have also kind of added, you know, thanks to the JD Vance's of the world have added poor white people to their list. Oh God, JD Vance. I, I read his book and I regret it. Like the, the whole idea that it's like, it's, it's a, it's not a race thing. It's a cultural thing. It, it just completely misses every single mark. Um, it's it's a capitalism thing. That's that's the secret. Don't don't read uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Just know it's a capitalism thing. So um, you discuss the episode duet, uh, which we briefly mentioned before in this chapter, and its relation to decolonization and perhaps recolonization and resettlement. Moreover. As the moral center of Deep Space Nine, uh, how do you see Kira Norris's views on Bajoran independence and Federation non-intervention? Here's, I mean, three cheers for Kira, right? Absolutely. I mean, go ahead. Except when uh, Odo's gone and she takes over being the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the chief security officer. That's, I mean, a cab, so we can't respect Kira in that role. And uh, she, there's an, there's an asterisk. yeah, she just needs to lay off Quark, let him do his little crimes. Like, come on, Kira. But uh, yeah, yeah, for the most part, we absolutely do love Kira. Um, but you know, from the outset, Kira forces us to confront the fact that the Federation has designs, you know, on Bajor that feel a little imperial. You know, from mm-hmm. the very first episode, she calls Cisco out on it, on you know, and language that you know is echoes of Edward Said, right? Saying every empire says it's not like the others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Empires like I'm not like the other girls. Right? <laughs> He's what. Um, and, you know, she does warm up to Cisco as emissary. And there's that beautiful um, there's that beautiful episode that I think is based on Das Boot. I'm forgetting its name right now, where she's praying for him when he's injured and they're they're hiding mm-hmm. um, a and Nebula or something. But um, but she she, you know, and, and she does sort of come around, but Bajor stays out of the Federation. And I, I think that's, you know, Ira Barris said that's one of the things he's proudest of about about Deep Space Nine, and I like that he put some friction on that process. Mm-hmm. Do you think Bajor should strive for Federation membership, or do you think they're they're better off alone? I I have to say that I was a little sad. Um, you know, I love Lower Decks, but I was a little sad to see that Bajor had just been totally, abs- uh, you know, absorbed with people like Shax, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I was kind of rooting for, for some kind of Bajoran, Bajoran autonomy. But I think what at, at the very least, what Deep Space Nine contributes is a sense of contingency rather than inevitability about that, about that development, which is so rare in the kind of liberal universalist, um, you know, soft empire that the Federation image often projects. Very true. So... In the book, you discuss the episode Sanctuary, um, which is about the resettlement of refugees. 
How do you see the parallels of this episode playing out in the world around us now? Such a, it's such a good episode, Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I, I've thought about, and I may end up writing more about Sanctuary separately because um, geographers are having some interesting debates right now about images of refugees in popular culture. Um, what I think is really significant about Sanctuary is that you know um, you have the Screans who are victims of the Dominion, mm-hmm. and they seek asylum, you know, um, on Bajor, right? The victims of the of the Cardassians, um, and so there is this potential for kind of lateral solidarity between two, you know, historically colonized people, um, and in a way that's actually a more accurate representation of how most asylum works in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is most asylum happens within the global South. Like the biggest the biggest refugee, you know, I think hosting country in the world, I believe is Turkey. I think it's something like really? 4 million. Interesting. Yeah, it's people from Syria, you know, it's people yeah, from Afghanistan, it's people from Iraq. Um, and so, you know, something like two thirds, yeah, I think are, are uh, people are um, who are, displaced seek asylum in other parts of the are coming from the global south and seek asylum in other parts of the of the global south and our images of asylum are so often preoccupied with you know the this telling the story about the north as a benevolent or malevolent you know host subject mm-hmm. uh, so we recenter ourselves as as global northerners and obviously there are some problems with bajor when it comes to sort of whitewashing its allegory because most of the actors cast to play bajorans in ds9 or white but i think that the um you know in, in strictly speaking in terms of the allegory the the parallels are actually set up there perhaps more closely with south south migration than any other treatment of, of immigration and asylum in the star trek franchise interesting um and to speak to that point uh, i don't know if you saw or if this is what you're talking about but uh recently the u.s government is trying uh to uh resettle um refugees from both ukraine and afghanistan and get um like families uh, u.s families to take them in and they're specifically calling them refugees whereas basically all other immigration they just call immigrants which is like a very weird but very like obvious decision of what they're trying to do there and the light in which they're trying to paint these certain words and these people with these words which is ridiculous you know oh absolutely yeah yeah, they're all basically all seeking asylum for some reason and they're all refugee seekers but we're only putting the title on the ones that we want uh from the wars we feel guilty about it's so selective and i mean you were talking about nafta before all the economic refugees and political Mm -hmm. refugees from pro-free trade regimes that we've backed it's a very 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 slippery um distinction when i was living in canada the immigration minister jason kenney who's now the premier of the province of alberta real right winger and rumored to be closeted gay guy um he would um, really weaponize, you know, which countries were were um, acceptable as legitimate refugee-producing countries. So if, if we didn't like you, mm-hmm. then you were homophobic, and then, you, then your homophobia became a geopolitical problem. So then we'd take LGBTQ refugees from, from that place. But if we liked you, we would really minimize the existence of homophobia, transphobia, biphobia in that place. So it was, it was very, very interested and, and, and um, not at all an objective barometer of the mix of political, economic, and social regions that impel people to seek asylum. Wild. So 
let's discuss religion and more specifically the Bajoran religion. So, and more specifically than that, religion in the characters of Kira Nerys and Kai Wen, my child. Can you speak to the use of religion in radical action and its duality inciting with oppression? For sure. It's so, I think double-edged, that duality is, yeah, I think you, you distilled that really nicely there. Um, I think you do see in the story of the Bajoran prophets allusions to the work of liberation theology in Latin America. Um, you know, um, certainly in those first three episodes in um, season two, the notorious three part that three parter that opened that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think they're they're pretty explicitly drawing on um, liberation theology there. But you also see religion's weaponization um, as sort of a trapping of national culture or this you know it's bound up with this idea of the nation as having pure origins that Mm -hmm. everybody's have everybody with this particular religious attachment or interpretation that only they will be sort of true true nationals um and i think kai win is such a great example of someone who you know will just sort of weaponize religion to support whatever political interests you know serve Mm -hmm. her own at a at a given moment um, I think more broadly, you see religion playing exactly that that same that same role. You know, I mean, I think about um, the popularity of Pentecostalism in Brazil. A lot of a lot of Pentecostals supported um, Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. and a lot of Pentecostals supported Lula. Neither one of them would have been able mm-hmm. to stick together a coalition. Mike Davis sometimes talks about this in his in his work. Um, you know, Ruth Gilmore will, will gesture to it every once in a while. I mean, you know, the history of Christianity, right? We get the theologies that naturalize things like enslavement, homophobia, mm-hmm. patriarchy. But we also get, you know, sources of, of you know, a lot of abolitionism comes out of, of Christianity. Oh, yeah. You, I God, mean, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., obviously, Christian. Uh, you know, yeah. you got um, uh, Malcolm X, a Muslim. You know, it's like, you know, it's... Uh, and a lot of a lot of Marxists, especially, are very anti-religion, are like very hardline atheist for some reason, because they do believe that Marx said uh, opium, or sorry, uh, religion is the opium of the masses, which he did. But before that, the quote goes something like, "But it is the beating heart in a cold world," or something like that, which is like there is a general duality to religion, and like you know there are great people out there who are christian and at the same time you also have christian nationalists which ironically are the people who 20 years ago were calling people islamo-fascists as though there is a fundamental difference between their worldviews and it's funny you talk about the the sort of um marxist left's antipathy to to religion because i I, this is i'm glad i'm glad you kind of interrupted me because it goes back to this um Eugene Debs, you know, his account of how he became a socialist, it's a jailhouse conversion. Mm-hmm. It, it feels akin to, you know, um, all, all of these stories of people converting to Islam, converting to Christianity, having their lives fundamentally changed while incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's incarcerated because of his organizing around the Pullman strike in Woodstock, Illinois in 1894. And uh, Victor Berger, who goes on to be a socialist congressman from Milwaukee, my hometown, brings him a copy of Das Kapital 
well mm-hmm. while he's in jail and he reads it and has so he you know he moves from sort of a left left of the democratic party kind of labor organizer and former politician to a socialist because of that experience you read vivian gornick you know the romance of american capitalism there's a sort of a theological valence to a lot of people's descriptions of what the communist party means in, in their lives mm-hmm. um so you know i i think without wanting to minimize the contributions of explicitly religious movements there's also a kind of latently religious dimension that i think animates a lot of people's attachment to their their left political convictions fair fair so uh let's move on to your third chapter here uh focusing on the jim hadar a race enslaved by drug dependence to serve the dominion as frontline shock troops how do you think the writing of this race uh, tells us about racial capitalism? What I love about um, the Jem'Hadar and particularly Avery Brooks's interpretation of them in um, The Abandoned mm-hmm. uh, and, and what we see in Hippocratic Oath is um, there the sense of, of uninevitability mm-hmm. um, that people's poverty, that people's experiences of addiction, that people even the people's people's experiences of um, uh, violence are products of organized abandonment rather than the innate truth of of who they are. Um, Sylvia Winter, the Jamaican philosopher, teaches us that human beings are not like bees. Um, we we don't just have our instinctual programming. We come with we come with a first set of genetic instructions, but they don't fully determine who we are because the the first set of instructions, our, our DNA, implements our second set of instructions, which are, is kind of our social and cultural programming um so you know i mentioned before ruth gilmore teaches us that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it and i think that sort of dominion political theology that idea of the order of things that sort of naturalizes the jem hadar as subservient addictive killers and the founders as gods that that order of things is constantly being called into question in in large and small ways um by by dissident jem hadar and and even the occasional vorta you know mm-hmm. Uh, there's that one way Yoon clone, I think, who who kind of um, betray, betrays the betrays the Dominion, um, and I, I, I really appreciate that sense of contingency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, in the Gem Hadar chapter, you touch on Section Thirty One in Sloan, its odious face and foil to Julian Bashir, and uh, later in the series uh, O'Brien as well. Um, what do you think are some of the ways in which Section 31's portrayal coincides with modern American statecraft? There's so much to say here about intelligence agencies, and I think there's something like 19 of them now, Holy so it's shit. like where do you want to start? But I think that the parallel that was very much in mind for William Sadler, the great William Sadler, you know, who plays Sloan, he says in interviews on, on StarTrek.com, you know, I was thinking about Oliver North. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had already played an Oliver North-esque character in um, in Die Hard 2. So, you know, this this apparatchik who is, um, you know, responsible and significant part for the Iran-Contra scandal, sort of moving money, moving weapons, um, you know, um, uh, uh, for counter-revolutionary forces in Central America that are that are trying to suppress um, uh, socialist governments. 
um, you know, and, and doing so kind of at the behest of the Reagan administration, but also at enough at arm's length enough that it gives Reagan sort of plausible deniability in, in the Iran-Contra hearings. Um, so there's this kind of outsourcing that's that's happening of foreign policy to un, undemocratic and, and incredibly violent and, and brutal actors like North. Um, and that was that was who Sadler, you know, said was he had in mind his little worm, I think he calls him in uh, <laughs> Sloan. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of parallels to be seen there, too, in the fact that Oliver Oliver North was ostensibly the fall guy for the Iran-Contra scandal. I think he was the only one charged with anything, the only one who went to prison and then immediately uh, released and had his record uh, expunged by uh, George Bush. So, you know, at least Sloan died. You know, we can hope as much for, you know, at least he didn't get like a, a panel on, um, on Fox and Friends or anything like that. So. Uh, and, and I mean, the, they're doing the same thing, I think, with the rehabilitation of Elliot Abrams, which is mm. just to see. I mean, we, this is America. We love to rehabilitate our war criminals, not, you know, not send them to the Hague. You know, we, we don't, we can't send them to the Hague. We're not even part of that system. So awesome. Um, so in this chapter, you ask a very important question. Why not a Klingon chapter? Uh, which honestly, I was wondering, given its direct parallels to pre-McCarthyism views on communism and the USSR is a brother in arms more so than a Cold War adversary, which is how I read it. Um, you know, the writers have said different; they have differing accounts as to how they were trying to portray the Klingons here. But I like to see it in the rosy view of when uh, you know FDR was still friends with Stalin. Um, so why not a Klingon chapter? You know, I like that reading, and I I think there needs to be more work done on the Klingons. Um, I think the Klingons are kind of a, a bad object in the existing academic like left criticism of Star Trek, and so to push that would be, I think, a, a really rich contribution. I think for me, what I struggle with with the Klingons is um, I didn't really feel like in DS9 the writers gave us glimpses of any Klingon political formation that was that would be like like a left as it were like mm-hmm. they, they give us the Cardassian dissidents they give us these dissident Jem'Hadar they show us like progressive and reactionary interpretations of the Joran religion but when it comes to the Klingons we sort I mean Martok comes from a rural province and not a lot of money so like I don't know maybe yeah, he, he's, like, he's working class he worked his way up through honor so yeah. And then I do feel like Martok is an especially enlightened Klingon, which, um, you know, that we see like glimpses of here and there, like in his acceptance of Worf into his house and also Alexander and sons and daughters, like the way he deals with with familial relations and the way he deals with community, I think uh, speaks a lot to his character. Um, Like also, you know, killing killing Gowron, pretty, pretty based, let's be honest. but uh and also like uh in an episode i don't recall the one but it's the one where uh Worf has to fight a whole bunch of jemhadar um and uh they're, they're captured uh martok oh, yes. Worf, garrick and bashir are all captured together and garrick is uh fighting claustrophobia in order to like rig a radio and um 
he's in there and he's super claustrophobic, but he's still working. And Martok says something to the effect of uh, a man's own mind is one of uh, the the greatest uh, enemies to conquer. And Worf says something like, uh, it takes a great man to do so, or something like that. And, you know, you, you don't see that out of Klingons much ever, except for Worf, who, you know, in that episode of TNG, I think, he was like, uh, their enemy is time when talking about like farming. Um, or maybe that was insurrection. I don't quite recall. But, uh, you know, I do see like the framing of certain things and how Martok sees the world as a possibility for kind of a, you know, cultural renaissance in the Klingon Empire soon after that. And unfortunately, we don't get to see the Klingon Empire in much a lot of anything that follows DS9. So, but. We'd like to. We'd like to see, you know, an enlightened, in my headcanon personally, uh, Grand Negus Rom and Chancellor Martok, they team up together and create like a, 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 a syndicalism, basically. I would love to see that. Yeah. I, I For me, I, I felt like we got glimmers of an individual in Martok, but not like a kind of social formation. And so then Fair. then it, then it kind of leaves us with the palace intrigue and, the, you know, and so, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely open to being wrong on the, on the Klingon point. I think I was also um, very turned off by their extreme racialization and early discovery. And that probably colored my interpretation a bit, you know, that makes sense. writing. Cause I wrote it in 2020. You Fair. Know? Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Gotcha. So, Hmm. Makes me, makes me have to think about things now, but, um, so, uh, we need to talk about Hippocratic Oath, uh, the episode in which, uh, Julian Bashir and, uh, Miles O'Brien crash land on a planet, uh, with some Jem'Hadar there. And Julian Bashir gets to work on trying to cure the Jem'Hadar of their drug addiction to Ketracel White. Uh, Bashir, for um, you could say mostly racist reasons, but also, uh, you know, because they are working for their kidnappers, and there, there's a lot of stuff that goes in there. But essentially, O'Brien um, goes ahead and destroys a whole bunch of medical devices, uh, therefore doing a racist war crime. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what sort of justice do you think should be sought from O'Brien? I, I, this is another question where I was like, this is so good. I really need to think. About it. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious about possibilities for transformative justice in the wake of the Dominion War. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm curious about what Odo's return to the Great Link means for, we think a lot about what it means for the founders, but what does it mean for the Porto? What does it mean for the Jem'Hadar? Like, are they gonna take a more modest and less hierarchical role in relation to those communities, you know? And so if the Jem'Hadar do get some kind of autonomy or self-rule, I know that DS9's hypothetical eighth season shows them converting en masse to the the prophets, to, to the Vajoran religion mm -hmm. uh, under Kira's leadership as a Vedic. But but if, if the Jem'Hadar gets some kind of um, autonomy or self-rule, I think then it becomes possible to imagine someone like O'Brien making restitution to to an organized community in some way and, and seeing these people in more complex terms, um, perhaps by making some kind of contribution to to the community. Um, but I, you know, I would just be curious to know what kind of demands uh, for reconciliation would come out of an autonomous Jem'Hadar politics. Um, Follow-up question to that. Do you think he's already served his time uh, during the episode Hard Time? 
I, I love the Reddit rumor that O'Brien is a spy um, because there, there is a certain plausibility to it. So, you know? I mean, there is the theory that uh, the episode um, where he's replaced with a double of himself, uh, that the real O'Brien died because he was poisoned and the other double like actually continued to exist, which uh, I kind of like that theory. You know, it, it makes sense because O'Brien does in like the third or fourth season kind of take a hard turn and he grows pretty dark, I think, in a lot of his actions. Um, and there, there's actually like a continuity and consistency to it uh, where he like, I mean, I think it's largely where the whole O'Brien must suffer meme comes from, which we'll get into a little bit later. But, um, you know, his, the subject matter that he deals with is largely very dark stuff. But, uh, you know, we kind of do love to see O'Brien suffer. It's it's interesting. He's compelling. Cole Meany's a fantastic actor. Um, yeah, yeah, he plays it. He plays it well. So let's move on a little bit and talk about Odo. So do you read Odo as an analog for Operation Paperclip and someone like Werner von Braun, who uh, was given, you know, directly after uh, the Nazis lost, he was given a job, I think, three months after Hitler killed himself working for the, the United States government making rockets. Um, do, do you see uh, kind of an analog there like I do, or am I maybe reading too much into it? I, I never want to, like, shoot down people's, you know, I mean, maybe that Ukraine readings you were talking about on Reddit. Oh, that, that was, no, I, yeah. No, I, I want to hear where you're going with that, because it's not one I'd consider, but I think it's really intriguing. Um, I have my own kind of reading of, of Odo that's kind of ambivalent. Like, on the one hand, I think that the ACAB thing is very salient, mm -hmm. you know? On the other hand, um, I think there's an interesting reading of Odo as a kind of um, diasporic Jewish person who maybe goes on a birthright trip, um, but, but starts to realize that his people who both are you know, persecuted or have been persecuted are also acting in persecutory ways towards others. Mm -hmm. um, their way of making home creates insecurity and dispossession for, for their neighbors. Um, and so, it, you know, it really is Odo at the end who saves his people from from themselves, but it's precisely through this kind of fierce intergenerational disagreement, right? He's one of the, the hundred, he's one of these children who's kind of sent away, scattered through the diaspora, but he comes back not faithfully reproducing founder ideology. There's this kind right. of queer interruption and conflict when it comes to the story the founders are telling about themselves that Odo ultimately offers them a way beyond their kind of um, resentment and and sense of only being victims and not also being perpetrators um so i i think i think that part is to his great credit even though we have to call him out for the copy stuff and and for you know um getting getting with the female changeling you know but before that's really a good idea right know, so, so now that you mention it, now that you mentioned birthright, um, you know, and if listeners don't know about that, it's um, it's a Jewish state-funded program where they send American Jews and I think you know Jews from pretty much all over the world to Israel, and uh, the idea, like the kind of hidden idea behind it, is that they'll find another Jewish person to marry. Uh, so, do you see Odo experiencing the Great Link as an analog to birthright? 
Only loosely. I mean, I think there's also really interesting um, uh, alternative formations. I think there's a group called Birthright Unplugged that are trying to expose American Jewish folks who are curious about what's it, what's it like to be a Palestinian, what's it like to live in in you know Gaza, oh, uh, or you know, um, or the West Bank. Uh, the, so so that like he might be taking in other kinds of information beyond the official sanctioned kind of national um, line, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because I think obviously a lot of what Odo encounters um, about the founders disturbs him, even as he, you know, he is, the, you know, one sympathizes with the plight of the founders that led, led them to become persecutors of others. But one has to consider what about the victims of the victims, you know, and I, I think right. I think is very sensitive to that. And what about the victims of the victims is, a, you know, that's that's Edward Said. That's the question of Palestine. You know? Right, right. So you mentioned Odo's changeling dysphoria in the book, which I found very interesting because it's not, not something I had ever thought of before, you know, especially being someone who has uh, dysphorias of their own. Uh, where do you think that came from both in universe and in the writer's room? Oh, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, these words are so similar in their appearance, but I think what I was mostly thinking with there was the concept of diaspora like oh diaspora okay yeah like scattering out migration Mm -hmm. forced placement to think about the continuities and discontinuities among um people who've been dispersed gotcha okay totally misread that one we'll move on then (laughs) (laughs) all right i got one bad question um so uh, let's move on to chapter four, defetishizing the Ferengi, which I got to say, I love, I just love the name of this chapter. It's wonderful. Uh, instantly sucked me in. So the chapter posits that instead of being a wild racial stereotype of Jewish culture, as it's commonly analogized, the Ferengi are in fact us, or to be more accurate, neoliberal Americans. how did you come to this conclusion? The Ferengi are so tricky, you know, mm. because I never want to tell anybody who sees an anti-Semitic or an anti-Asian caricature in the Ferengi that's not there because I, I see that's one of the things I see as well. And mm. I think that needs to be confronted. But I also am mindful of the fact that many of the actors and writers who created the Ferengi are American Jews, mm-hmm. um, liberal, some, some leftists, some socialists, you know. We're very thoughtful and, and um, you know, not doing this lightly, not doing this in a trivial way. Mm-hmm. And what you what you learn when you listen to like interviews with Armin Shimmerman or read them or, or Ira Bear, you know, mm-hmm. is is that they say, you know, um, Shimmerman says this is the Rockefellers, this is the Carnegie. So he's pointing the finger not at Jewish people in this kind of old, tired, anti-Semitic, you know, association of Jews with capitalism, but but at like the white Protestant bourgeoisie and the, the sort of, um, you know, titans of industry, so to speak, of the 19th century United States, the robber barons. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bear says, you know, they're regular people. They're, they're us. They're meant to implicate us. And, you know, he's saying that in, in sort of the height of 1990s neoliberal cultural politics. So I, I, I came to that conclusion just by kind of reading and thinking about it. I think even some of the, around TNG, there's some there's some writers who talk about, even in the last outpost, they were thinking about like um, Reaganomics and, and, and sort of the savings and loan scandal and sort of Wall Street in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. So Interesting. That point. Yeah, and uh, I mean, 
And it's it's something interesting to me that uh, several of the actors who have played Ferengi actually have great politics. Like you said, Armin Shimmerman uh, is a very thoughtful guy, um, actually pretty pretty far to the left, uh, considering like Trek actors, as well as Wallace Shawn, who plays the Grand Negus, who is the like the greatest capitalist of all. Like uh, the actor is very far on the left. Like he's a very very thoughtful leftist. Um, and yeah, one thing that's like really nice that we see from DS9, and a reason Armin Shimmerman uh, joined the series in the first place, because uh, as some people might know, he was he actually played the very first Ferengi that you see on TNG, um, and he 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 thought, hey, I don't want people to see the Ferengi as a monoculture that's you know perceived as anti-Semitic or Orientalist in some way and so I want to bring new life to these people and these characters which I think is an incredibly noble cause and one of the reasons that DS9 is so incredibly rich is it shows us unlike pretty much any other Star Trek program that no culture is a monoculture there are unique actors within every society Uh, even Empire you know there's anti-imperialists and empire there's people who are softly pro-imperialists like garrick you know people who are basically um they're an exodus from a society but still believe in their core tenets which um you know i I think a lot of people don't give ds9 enough credit for the fact that it really delves into the fact that no culture is a monoculture we'd love to see that So in this chapter, you discuss the episode Progress, which follows Jake and Nog on their journey to trade Yamak sauce for, eventually, gold-pressed latinum. In it, we're introduced to self-sealing stem bolts that are mentioned uh, several times after this in the series, uh, which are a tradable commodity that seemingly has no material use and no one knows quite what they do. What sort of self-stealing stem bolts are we trading as a consumer society today? It's it's a great question. I um, you know what what really intrigued me about the the bolts, which are so silly, you know, and so fun, and show up they show up later, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't go through, and and um, I, I forget if it's the bolts or the yamak. I, I think it's the bolts. But anyway, um, so it's like, what am I going to do with this? But um, I, what, what interested me is that, that, you know, in progress, Jake and Nog go to Chief O'Brien and they're like, he is really the arbiter of like, what is useful matter? What is matter that has the capacity to circulate and what is just sort of like a dead junk or niche commodity, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the fact that he doesn't know what the stem bolts are, that's really like ringing off alarm bells for them. So this kind of got me thinking about, um, just like standardization of materials more broadly, like what angle is a is the thread at on a screw, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or why are why are stop signs shaped the way that they are? Um, there's a historian called Daniel Immerwar at Northwestern University who has done a lot of work showing that um, the standardization of stuff, as it were, like the way that tools and things like that are made compatible with one another on kind of a global market, is an outcome of um, the U.S. military buildup in in World War II and efforts to kind of coordinate between allied powers. So you know. Um, uh, standardizing shoe sizes, you know, which is an incomplete project, right? Fair. But but all of those, all of those efforts to un- un- universalize or standardize um, stuff 
a lot of that comes out of um, uh, more efforts in which you know different different peoples are collaborating and need to have compatible parts, and then that paves the way for kind of U.S. global economic ascendance in the in the post-war period. So that was the parallel that I noticed when it comes to is, is sort of useless commodities in our own lives. I mean, I, I think you know just just hop on my Amazon, right? Yeah, <laughs> like begin. Yeah, I mean, anything you can buy on sale on like Amazon Day, you probably don't need. It's probably going to be ultimately completely useless in your life, and it will bring you no joy in community. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. So, uh, continuing about uh, talking about Nog, uh, let's talk about him and his relation to racial capitalism. So Nog, son of Rom, an aspiring Starfleet member, is caught between two worlds in the series of both the Ferengi and the Federation. What parallels do you draw between Nog's journey and modern or historical military recruitment? Um, I like that you flag both modern and historical, because if you look at the history of the idea of social citizenship, like the idea that um, you you could get various kinds of material entitlements from the state by virtue of social membership, um, in the West, a lot of that is rooted in the notion of soldiers as citizens, like the kinds of wealth promises that Otto von Bismarck, for instance, was was willing to make to veterans, but not to um, sort of German or Prussian society as a as a whole. Um, it's that's that's how it starts. I mean, we see that with uh, the GI Bill after World War II that that certain benefits are made available to certain people on the basis of military service. There's a lot of exclusions of that, even veterans of color, mm -hmm. um, gay veterans. Margot Kennedy shows that if you had a gay, you know, gay, gay conduct on your uh, misconduct on your record during World War II, you weren't eligible for some of those same GI That's Bill. That's insane, because as everyone knows, the military's gay. Military's <laughs> so gay. It's like um, you're, you're around, it's like, I mean, you're around a bunch of dudes doing stuff all the time. It's so gay. Like, look at the uniforms. It's so gay. I mean, it's awesome. Not what they do, but like dudes hanging out, wearing the same uniform together, being, uh, you know, homosocial. It's awesome. We love that shit. Like the military. Um, so, oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, so just to say um, the the. Um, you know, and, and then fast forward to today, right, where, you know, we've, we saw these movements demanding an expansion of social citizenship after World War II, after the GI Bill. That's a lot, what a lot of civil rights is about. You know, we want a piece of the pie, too. But then you see with the rise of neoliberalism, the welfare state in general is contracting. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now we're left and, and one of my mentors in graduate school, Deborah Cowan, some of her early work was was thinking about this idea of military workfare that in many places, you know, the military is the closest thing you have to a social safety net. Yeah. So if you're poor, you're racialized, you're indigenous. How are you going to pay for school? How are you going to get health care? How are you going to get housing? Well, often the only the only vestige of the welfare state that's left is the military. And I just saw an uncanny parallel between that and Nog's, you know, desire to exit from like a pretty bad position within Ferengi capitalism as mm -hmm. a of a younger brother, you know, mm -hmm. um, an idiot brother at that, as 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 Quark always refers to. to um, he's he's Ron. secretly brilliant. He is an <laughs> idiot. He's he's just a himbo, you know. He's yeah. yeah. He's not all there. He loves his mother and he knows engineering. Good man. 
but capitalism, friendly capitalism doesn't know what to do with him. It doesn't, it doesn't give him the means to make the most of him as a person, as it doesn't for most people, you know? And so Nog needs a way out of that. And there's this parallel, I think, to sort of federation military warfare that, that opens up for him. Absolutely. So following the loss of his leg in the siege of AR-558, spoiler alerts, um, and its companion episode, It's Only a Paper Moon, what do you think the writers were trying to tell us about wounded veterans and war trauma? Uh, I, this, my answer for this is very concise. War sucks. Yeah. You know, war, war doesn't make boys into men. It butchers people. Nobody wins. Mm-hmm. You know, the ruling class wins maybe, but, but it does not have the desired effects for Nog. You know, Nog thinks this is going to make him more of a man and give him more kind of economic and social personhood. And, in some ways, you know, he there are aspects of his Starfleet experience that I think are really positive, but but I mean the trauma, physical and psychological that he endures is is pretty extreme. And now that you mention it, um, I never really thought about it before, but it's interesting that uh, DS Nine does have a ruling class, but only on one side of the war. Really, I mean. You could definitely call like Chancellor Chancellor Gulron and then Martok like in the ruling class, but as far as the Federation goes, uh, Benjamin Sisko is the main commander of the war for almost its entire duration, and you know he's basically a middle manager. Even though he has the title of captain and commander of the fleet and whatever, like he still has layers of bosses on top of him. And uh, that's that's a uh, that's real interesting now that I think about it. I've actually never thought about it in that way before. So and and even as that's happening, I love that interpretation because he's he's making plans to retire on Bajor. He's mm-hmm. thinking his own exit route from from you know being in this this middle position, you know, and then ends up leaving early for for religious reasons. <laughs> religious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can we can call it that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he, he took his retirement in the Celestial Temple for how long? We don't know. We don't know. He says he'll be back sometime, you know. So um, it's time to get into uh, one of our favorite episodes, I'm sure, Bar Association. The most pro-union episode of DS9, completely about unionizing. You're wearing a shirt of it right now, and it's on the cover of your book. Um, uh, once again, willburrows.art for uh the t-shirt merch all that fun stuff so uh and also soytrek.com for other pro union merch so um under the advice of uh so in this episode rom uh father of nog and brother of quark under the advice of miles o'brien and julian Bashir, unionizes his workplace at quark's bar his brother's establishment what lessons do you think this episode teaches us about agitation, solidarity, and organizing? I have. I think there's three big takeaways for me. Uh, there's so much you could say. It's a, such a good episode. The first is that bosses need us, and that they the rumors that they can automate away the work of social reproduction have been greatly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. I love the glitchy holograms in that episode that fail to replace jewel waiters and Davo girls with Clark with Clark that I mean think about the quality of what chat GPT is putting out and you know, 
say no more. Number two, I think, is that um, organizing, you know, can be one way that people overcome other kinds of differences. So mm-hmm. there certainly are, you know, really, really appalling histories of racism, sexism, homophobia, and corners of the labor movement. You know, AFL CIO, um, or sorry, the AFL yeah. to be specific. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about like business unionism, bargains with imperialism, all of it. But, um, you know, there, Jane McAlevey, I think, speaks to this that, that, you know, when she's organizing nurse is one way she gets the it's really on you know by organizing the shop for that she gets like white nurses to overcome their racism and to stop doing microaggressions against the filipinas for instance it's like realizing you have common material interests with somebody else the waiters and the double girls don't always have great relationships at quarks but they band together in that episode because they they have the same exploiter right and they they have ultimately you're always going to have more in common with the person working next to you than the person working in the office above you that's a yeah it's a great takeaway there so sorry the last one on that number three would just be that organizing changes people and i think you 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 know their expectations of their lives themselves their worldview and i think you see that so clearly in the case of nog or rom rom in the the confidence that not just Rom, but also O'Brien. Like, you know, mm. like uh, when he talks about, you know, his ancestor and how he was a union man, like, you know, he he, wing, he's, he feels something deep about it and like connects deeply to his history and his union history. And then he goes right back into his job of trying to put himself in an early grave, which is very charming of him. Um, so closing out the Ferengi, let's talk about females. So drawing from episodes such as Rules of Acquisition and Ferengi Love Songs, amongst others, we won't talk about Profit and Lace, we see women as subservient a subservient class in Ferengi society whose position is ameliorated at the hands of Mugi, Quark, and Rom's mother. Do you think the wrong lessons might be conveyed here with the tool of diverse capitalism? Yeah, I mean, Moogie's a girl boss. There's kind of no way around. It's it's feminism for the one percent, mm-hmm. you know. As as Cynthia Arutsa and Titi Bhattacharya and Nancy Fraser would say, I think um, I do think it's interesting that some of Moogie's more more kind of you know reformist reforms, but I think necessary reforms. I mean, like like I don't know. Maybe it's not a reformist. Right? Like like just giving women economic personhood is like that's kind of basic, you know, and kind of fundamental. But it does end up paving the way for something more like an economic democracy. Um, now I'm I have my hesitations about that because um, you know we know like like Kiana Taylor talks about predatory inclusion, the way that capitalism kind of incorporating historically redlined populations, offering mm-hmm. them an invitation but on kind of suspect terms, often turns out not so well for them. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's interesting that, like, as skeptical as someone like you or I might be of, of, of some of Moogie's investments, um, it, you know, it does end up seeming to, to open up things like workers' comp and, you know, like, like other kinds of benefits come from come from that kind of girl boss aspiration that I, for one, would not have expected, which is maybe too optimistic of, of DS9. I don't know. Fair. So speaking of optimism in DS9, just for fun here, what do you think happened to the Ferengi Alliance after Rom took the high seat of Grand Negus at the end of the series? I love this question, and I think if I was a really enterprising Lower Decks writer, <laughs> I think I would depict the Ferengi Alliance as in the throes of some kind of um, 
Sheryl Sandberg feminism, where where gender inclusivity has kind of been manipulated and converted into rhetoric, but where actual Frenchy feminism, socialist feminism, is also a live item. Mm-hmm. So so think about Frenchy as a, like a contested society, just as you were speaking about how no culture is a monolith. I think showing both of those would be really, they could do an episode on Ferenginar where they they sort of experience the highs of the, the Mugi rhetoric and then the lows of like ordinary Ferengi women who are agitating for, for more in some way. Maybe that's too heavy handed, but I think it would be interesting to kind of trouble the, the optimism that attends the Ferengi at the end of DS9. Not at all. And it makes me think, have we seen any episodes like located entirely on Ferenginar? Outside of DS9? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty rare even on DS9. Like, yeah. huh, interesting. Yeah, because most of the time, like, Grand Negus is just traveling over to uh, the, the station, not the other way around. Interesting. So, um, good for that chapter. Let's get into Chapter 5, which is all about our boy, the most important man in all of Starfleet history, Miles O'Brien. And more importantly, his family. Uh, In this chapter, you do a fantastic job of not rewriting, but I think writing the correct history of Keiko O'Brien, a professional botanist, spouse of Miles O'Brien, ship's teacher. She wears many hats. Um, uh, uh, Paul Wraith victim. Um, So do you think Keiko is so often maligned, not by just, why do you think Keiko is so often maligned, not by just Star Trek fans, but DS9 fans as well? Um, I I think we can talk about the obvious reasons, you know, racism, misogyny. Um, I also think, and you know, Women at Warp is very good on this point. Um, They needed to give Rosalind Chow better material because she really rose to the occasion when when she was offered it. Yeah. Um, but I think I think we can, so, so we can name all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that uh, uh, taking Keiko's role on the terms that it's presented to us in the in TNG and DS9, she's put in the role of reminding us of all the social reproduction work that still has to happen in the 24th century, like the work that hasn't been automated away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uncomfortable for a certain kind of techno-optimist um, viewer who sort of aspires to transcend embodiment. I think Keiko reminds us that the body is a problem that we're not going to escape in the 21st century. And I think that that you know, is challenging for, for some people. But I think, it's, I think it's actually quite welcome and quite important. Fascinating take. So you discuss uh, Keiko taking the role of sole childhood educator on DS9, in which Jake Sisko laments the hardships of learning from a computer. Uh, tell me how you think the shadows are current reality and what we might learn from it. It's kind of an interesting moment, I think, for for public schools, because I feel like, um, uh, you know, Keiko is modeling the difference that a good, free, you know, in-person public education can make that you can't get from an e-learning company. Mm-hmm. One of my good friends, Nehan Farhadi, is a critical geographer who studies e-learning, and she's she's like really skewering some of the, the marketing appeals of some of these organizations. 
but you know, we, we live in this moment when public schools have long been under attack, um, but there's also been kind of a revalorization of, um, of public education and of sort of public sector, the public sector labor that goes into K-12 education. You know, the last two strikes that the um, LA Teachers Union have gone on here have been supported by a majority of Angelinos because they've done really careful work uh, organizing with parents, with students, with communities to show, you know, hey, like our working conditions are your learning conditions like we're we're in it together we're on the same side and so i think it's it's hugely important that keiko does that and i, I think it's telling that you know um jake doesn't just want to learn on a computer in sort of the privatized space of his family quarters makes sense yeah i'm uh i'm doing online school right now and i mean i uh there's something i like about it because if I have a bad teacher, I don't do well in the class. And so like just having all the information there and kind of being an autodidact, it's nice. However, I miss when you have a good teacher because, you know, a good teacher inspires you and like gives you information you would have just not otherwise considered information that's perhaps in subtext or in context or just like hiding behind the information in front of your face, you know? And I think that's, that's incredibly important, uh, to have not just a teacher, but like a mentor in learning a lot of times, you know? One of my colleagues is a social psychologist and he, Mark's a social psychologist of race, amazing person. Sick, that's a sick job. But his training in social psychology and his organizing experience um, he's such a good reader of students' body language that he can tell when someone's not connecting with the material. So it's really fun to do teaching observations for him because y you really see the difference it makes that he's there with the students in person. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's important to have people like that. Not, not, not computers, not videos of people like that, but people like that. Because, like, you know, one thing we crave and, like, is, you know, like dopamine and serotonin and all the things we get from recognition, which a computer can never offer us. And so, like... You know, I'm not going to say like doing online learning is going to like make people more prone to depression, but I think it might, you know, like because I think largely what we call depression in our society is just a lack of feeling of community and a complete alienation from our labor, from our, uh, our democratic processes uh, and from our institutions, you know. So, yeah, uh, teachers are important. Pay, pay them pay them, pay them what they're worth. Uh, in this book, you posit that in contrast with a hev heavily perceived homosocial and perhaps homosexual relationship to O'Brien and Bashir, that this relationship is largely of Keiko's machinations. How did you come to that conclusion? I don't think it's solely due to her, but I, I do think we get evidence of, of her kind of manipulating them into spending more time together mm -hmm. um, because you know, she has all kinds of reasons for wanting time without Miles. She has work to do. She's entitled to her own peace and quiet and her mm -hmm. own life, you know. She seems um, to be the more active of the two in the parenting role, for sure. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> That time she spends on Bajor with Molly, you know, um, uh, they really like sort of cement a bond, but that also creates you know, more of a gender division of labor and more of a more responsibility on, on her shoulders. So he's very happy when like Miles is off, like playing with 
Julian, or um, when he's spending time with Kira, you know, during the during the surrogacy, like mm-hmm. she she seems to value her time away from her partner as well as time with her partner, which, you know, more power to her. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, thank you for writing the correct history of Keiko O'Brien. It's very much appreciated as a Keiko stan myself over here. I'm, I'm trying to rewrite the histories or, or write the correct histories of Keiko, Luxwana Troy, just like powerful women that are unfairly maligned for being like you know, for having agency, basically. Like, you know, for everything that you think, like, Luxana Troy is guilty of, Riker is probably guilty of the same stuff, uh, Okana is guilty of the same stuff, you know, uh, Ransom on Lower Decks is far more guilty of the same stuff, and people still like those characters, and you wonder why, you know? Maybe because they're... Uh, white men. Probably because they're white men. So, uh, in the book, uh, you ask if the common meme of O'Brien must suffer comes from a reactionary place, which uh, made me think a lot about my own memes. Um, and uh, you, you say, uh, in a way, paints him as a white male victim. Do you think this was intentionally done by the writers? Or do you find it more of a trope created by fans as a cultural placeholder for themselves? I, I really like the nuanced terms on which you put that question. Um, I think the you, I think the writers are to a degree aware of it, and I think you see this in like sort of '90s interviews with them. They'll refer to O'Brien as like the everyman, or like you know, like it's like he's the only white human male character on the show, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I'm not always clear how self-conscious they are about it because I think fans probably also brought it to their attention. Like we know that in the Star Trek fandom, there is this ongoing kind of dialogue and dialectic between writers and and consumers, you know, almost from the outset, you know, I mean, even, even before DS9, you know, hit the air, people were writing and saying, don't make a station based show. Like little school children were writing and saying, you know, we like mobility. So, so the, the, that conversation is so ongoing that mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if the writers ever really get a moment that's truly, you know, just to themselves. Um, I don't think that in O'Brien's case, it is ultimately reactionary. Like I don't come to that conclusion, but I think it is is worth asking the question against the broader, you know, um, cultural backdrop of the 90s. Like, if you think about the contract with America, you think about the promise keepers, um, you think about the backlash against affirmative action, you know, which is only in the 90s, but it's certainly happened. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think, the Supreme Court yeah. just ruled on it, like, what, a month yeah. and a half ago? Yeah. But, but I think you do see a kind of restaging of, of white male injury in order to authorize particular kinds of, of reactionary politics. So I think one has to ask the ask the question, um, even if, you know, I think there's a lot to recommend O'Brien and, you know, certainly Meany as like serious figures for any kind of left politics. Absolutely. And uh, also to, yeah, herald like people on DS9 with very good politics, Cole Meany, also very good politics. Like, um, yeah, just uh, Google Cole Meany Margaret Thatcher and see what he has to say on Margaret Thatcher, and you'll get a pretty good idea of where he's going. It's uh, very, very lovely uh, um, borderline violent stuff, and we'd love to see it. So, um, all right. 
time for my favorite part. It's time to get into the gay shit. Uh, so chapter six is titled Empire's Queer Inheritances and deals with being gay in space. So in it, you claim that although representation matters, it is not the most important criterion supposing context, subtext, and content is perhaps superior communications. Do you think that the subtext and context make DS9 inherently queer? And if so, do you think it's the gayest trek? Yes and yes. <laughs> um, I would say parallel construction to ACAB, all treks are gay. Um, but I think on a figural level, DS9 is absolutely the queerest. And it's not that I don't think representation is important or that I don't celebrate the real gains made in representation by, you know, sort of all the, the contemporary treks, you know. Um, but it's that there is this tradition of what the late Jose Esteban Munoz calls disidentification. So finding yourself in representations that are maybe not meant exactly for people like you. And the example that Munoz gave was um, some of uh, James Baldwin's writing on Betty Davis and how here's this rich, straight white woman, but there's aspects of how she's figured or her characterization in certain roles that he is a black queer man, you know, Baldwin could could identify with. I, you know, um, David Greven makes this argument really beautifully in the context of queer Trek spectatorship. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that um, Jack Fennell did a poll on this and, and wrote it up a few years ago, but before the new Treks came out, DS9 was by far the most popular um, Star Trek with with trans fans. Um, yeah, Fennell found I think like over a hundred, he had a statistically significant number of trans fans that he surveyed and that was the overwhelming favorite. And I think on a figure level, DS9 is just smoldering with queer and trans subtext. And um, definitely I can speak from my own experience as like the source of like probably a plurality of the gayest Star Trek memes on the internet at this point. My, f my fan base is very queer like incredibly and you know uh categorically not categorically almost categorically their favorite uh trek is ds9 and i think that says something you know um so uh following this question do you think uh jedzia dax and Worf's relationship is inherently queer this is such a good question um you know this i know this but i think it's worth stating when you're queer, even if you're cis, um, and, and if you're bi or pan, if you have sex with someone, even if it looks like a hetero act, you know, mm -hmm. on paper, you don't experience it that way because your consciousness of gender and sexuality and desire is different. Mm -hmm. And so I think nothing Dax does, you know, can be read as hetero in that sense. Um, I, go ahead. Oh, no, absolutely. No, I, I was just going to agree with you. And then I was going to say, you know, the other dimension to consider here, besides Klingons canonically having two penises, which I know is a key point for you all in this show, is that, um, you know, historians of the very ideas of gender and sexuality teach us that these ideas are inherently racialized, that the sort of the 19th century discourse on how to be a good woman, on how to be a heterosexual, how to be a good man, all of those things were always articulated in terms of profound anxieties about uh, miscegenation 
um, as a, as a, you know, a form of sort of um, degradation of the white race, let's say there's lots of, there's lots of anxiety about that. So anytime you're talking about sex, that's crossing a color line as well. Um, I think that you are in, in, in a broad historical sense, um, there, there, there is a kind of querying that, that needs to be considered as well. Absolutely. And something I totally forgot to mention that you pointed out in the book that I, I had never even thought of before, uh, but going back to O'Brien, uh, you mentioned that O'Brien and Keiko's relationship is actually the first sustained uh, interracial relationship on Star Trek, which I had never thought of before, but holy shit, they didn't get there until the 90s? That 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 blew my mind. Because, you know, they had the first interracial kiss back in, what, 1967, 68? And, and yeah, they didn't have a sustained relationship, though, until now, which kind of blew my mind because, you know, we've seen sustained relationships between all types of people except for people of different races up until Deep Space Nine, which is wild. Um, and then I want to say, like, you know, uh, Worf and Jadzia's relationship might be the first sustained Klingon, well, I mean... She's not human, but I guess like humanoid kind of relationship. I'm not sure. It might be Paris and, um, and uh, Bellana, but uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. So we'll have to do more research. So uh, next in the book, you discuss the episode Let He Who Is Without Sin, which is another episode that we don't discuss on this podcast. So no questions. Uh, no, um, so uh, it's the episode where Jedzia and Worf go to Risa, also with Quark and a few others. And uh, Worf becomes a terrorist, basically. He just becomes a right-wing terrorist. Um, so although it's a very unloved episode, including by this podcast, uh, you draw some conclusions about Worf and his unchecked masculinism, uh, masculinism in it. Uh, how does toxic and reactionary masculinity play into Worf's actions in this episode and to the greater Trek universe as a whole? Oof, okay, I, I'll start with Worf, and then we can think maybe together about the greater Czech universe as a whole, because I think that's a great question. Uh, because, I mean, there's obviously, I think, something to be said about Klingon culture and Klingon social mores here, too, and how masculinity and masculism plays into that. But yeah, sorry, go for it. True, true. Um, so I see Warp as profoundly preoccupied with his own capacity to do harm, and I, I you know, I... I Guesses as much in this episode, but I think I read him that way. But it needs to be understood through the lens of his racialization as a Klingon that's growing up on Earth in a you know human community. It's not comfortable for him to let loose mm -hmm. uh, you know, from a very very early age, and so he sees these people on Risa letting loose, and it disgusts him. I think he's also kind of envious of it. And then along come the fundamentalists on Risa, um, the new the new essentialists, right, Pascal. Mm -hmm. Yep. Federation needs to toughen up, and he's already a cop. He's already a security officer. He's already like you know got got all of this kind of inclination by virtue of his socialization, his experience of racialization, mm -hmm. and and by virtue of his profession. And so I think he's he's all ears, and it, it takes a lot to sort of talk him down from that. Um, Phil Chrisman, uh, who's a who's uh, I think a literary thinker, um, he calls masculinity the abstract rage to protect. And I think Warp is kind of, you know, I think we can talk about the utility and the limits of that definition. Um, but I think that he, I think Warp is very much looking for somewhere to direct that rage. And I think that Fullerton gives it form and coherence for a moment. 
Um, but then it's it's really up to Dax, I think, to kind of talk, talk him out of it and show him that another way is, is possible, um, both politically and erotically. Yeah, I mean, you know, just just goes to show you, it always takes some enlightened queer to uh, talk the man down from violence. That's that's just how the, the world works. So speaking of queers, um, perhaps not enlightened this one, uh, next you talk about Garak and his obvious, spectacular, and sometimes evil queerness. Uh, you draw the conclusion that his backstory is not an excuse for his embrace of unwilling family and reactionary empire. What is it about his past and minoritarian logic that makes Garrick so compelling to us? I think Garrick, I think we can really illuminate Garrick by thinking about um, his sort of foils. And I, I think mm -hmm. about like Nog or Worf, like people who are in some ways trying to be starkly model minorities um, and trying to fit into the Federation's kind of liberal universalist society. Garrick isn't interested in any of that. Like he is the only one of his kind, but he's not like, or you know, for them in Starfleet, you know, for him on the station. But he's looking to reclaim what's his. Um, and I think this is where things get interesting because um, even though we can tell that the Federation and is, is not a perfect place for Worf or for Nog, there's still some sort of aspiration to belonging. Whereas Garrick knows full well that the Cardassian Empire is bad for other people and in some ways bad for him. Mm -hmm. But he's also profoundly attached to his place in it. He's trying hard to, to fit into systems that obviously aren't good in him, good, good for him, but also afford him a certain pleasure and empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, he's also someone who's used to eliding detection as a spy and as someone who isn't sexually respectable. And, and it's that it's that kind of wiliness that affords him a measure of freedom within these otherwise oppressive systems. Um, and so I think as despicable as Garrett can be, there's something about trying to fit into a system that you know isn't working for you or other people, but that you still desire, you know, to participate in mm -hmm. that is unfortunately relatable. Like if you think about the grind set, like people who are, you know, trying really, really hard to make lives work that aren't working for them and that definitely aren't working for other people. Um, you know, Wendy Brown, who's a political theorist, was at uh, Berkeley for many years. I think she put it really well. She said, whether my students are on the right or the left, they, you know, or in the center, they, they all are kind of sober about the fact that capitalism is unjust, but that doesn't stop them from hedging their bets with, within it. So I think there's something about Garrick kind of so openly seeking belonging in something that he also knows is not good for him, but is empowering to him in a certain sense that that um i think it's it speaks to certain certain dilemmas that are on a structural level relatable for 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 many people even as we you know try as we might to be like nog and just like make it all work you know absolutely and uh follow-up question to that uh do you think garrick would be just as evil if he didn't have extreme daddy issues <laughs> His daddy issues are so, so central to to his evil. What I love about um, uh, um, Andrew Robinson's uh, novel, which I think has just been released as an audiobook Indeed. in a more affordable, Last week, yeah. more affordable, the paperback was hard to, uh, like I used research funds to buy it, but it was not cheap. <laughs> no, it was, uh, uh, I think they started at $159 for a paperback yeah. copy. 
my administrator and my coach is a real saint. And so she was like, okay, I understand that you need that for research, but like hundred dollars on a Star Trek paperback. Um, but, but at any rate, um, you know, he, I think he does a good job of um, both showing what's kind of repressive, but also attractive about this, this um, figure of a Navratan for Garrick um, and, and certainly enigmatic, right? He's framed as his uncle, but then he's clearly obviously his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what I like about Robinson's um, n- uh, novel is that he also gives Garrick a kind of surrogate father figure who is more humane, who is interested in the fact that, um, in educating Garrick about the fact that Cardassia is actually a mestizo society, it's a settler colonial society, that they're, they're the Habitians, you know, who have not been fully supplanted by Cardassian settler colonialism, who are, you know, have a much more kind of sustainable and, and respectful of the environment and, and like a non, non-imperialist kind of um, worldview that is like sort of starting to undergo a revival on Cardassia. So if, we can think about Garrick as having a bad daddy, but then possibly also a good enough daddy, you know? And, and and it seems toward the end of that novel that perhaps there's space in his heart for, for both, you know? Um, I, I think that, I think that book is just, just brilliant. And, um, you know, I, I'm so grateful that, that we, we have access to it in a more affordable form now. I hope more people get a chance to, to access it. Well, absolutely. I, I, uh, now that I'm done with your book, uh, I, I think I'm going to start on that one. Maybe Andrew Robinson will come on the podcast. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if we have that kind of cheese, but uh, <laughs> I could always ask. You know, you never know. Um, so uh, you discuss how late in the series, Garrick um, agrees to be an intelligent asset for the Federation and how it plagues him with such feelings of guilt that he has to go to the station's counselor at th- that time, Esri Dax, to sort out his feelings of loyalty to the Cardassian Empire. What do you think this says about the human condition and perhaps the American condition and our loyalties to states and systems from which we feel entirely alienated? It's a great question. I I think that the, the trouble becomes when the alienation is not total, you know, um, when there is some kind of promise or some kind of seduction that leads to this sort of ambivalent attachment, which is what I think the Federation becomes for Garrick. It's like, this is my. This is not my people, but it might enable me to have some kind of means to restore my relationship with my father or my standing on Cardassia, a different kind of Cardassia. And so, insofar as it enables that, I am attached to it. Hmm. Um, I, I'm teaching a graduate course right now uh, at Claremont Graduate University called Minor Conservatisms, and so we're really interested in this question of like what keeps people attached to institutions that aren't on their side or lives that aren't working for them. Hmm. And uh, one of the things we read is um, Judith Butler. We read from the introduction to Judith Butler's book, The Psychic Life of Power. Um, where she talks about, and she's drawing on Foucault, but she's also drawing on Freud, this kind of paradox of um, uh, what does it mean to want to be, um, like in order to become a subject of power, like to be invested with power, to be invested in recognition, which all of us kind of crave as social beings, we also have to become subject to power. You know, like that that's how citizenship works. That's how social contracts work. And so I think, I think that kind of trade-off is is one that you see um for garrick but i mean you see it for nog you see it for for other kinds of people who are seeking some kind of citizenship or some kind of provisional um 
with an institution that they're not entirely, you know, their interests are not entirely aligned, but there's some promise, you know, that seems to be helping. Fair. Interesting. So, uh, speaking of Garrick, let's move on to Julian Bashir, stations doctor and genetically modified queer coded twink. Do you find Trek's repeated use of uh, genetic modifications to be strictly queer coded? I I love uh, so first of all I you know thank goodness for that I think it's actually uh, let he who is a, uh, without sin that really form fitting outfit that that um, Alexander Siddig wears when he's on Risa like <laughs> twink icon um, you know that fashion icon twink icon thank goodness Absolutely. for um, I like the reading of genetic modification as queer coded, and I, I, I like the work. I think you all have done some interpretive work around that with respect to um, uh, Strange New Worlds mm-hmm. and Chin um, Riley in that respect. Absolutely. I, I think of um, uh, I think of Bashir as definitely a queer character. I, I, I like the idea of kind of closeting around um, uh, genetic modification, but I my reading of it is really focused on um, questions of questions of race, um, questions about um, why is eugenics suddenly so popular again in the 1990s? You know, after mm-hmm. being repudiated by good, you know, post post World War II liberal social science and so much of the West. I think Deep Space Nine really takes that on in a way through through Bashir and through the Jem'Hadar, and I think it, it's trying to tell us something about um, the waning of other kinds of social uh, solidarity that make recourse to genetic explanations for inequality suddenly become more attractive. Hmm. And so I, I think Bashir is an interesting interlocutor for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can also read the the. Um, you know the the modifications that his parents seek for him as a kind of allegory for racial anxieties about immigrant parents like like so here genetics is actually kind of a stand-in for um uh cultural practices that are profoundly racialized which um Um, a a bunch of people don't seem to know but alexander sadig who plays uh bashir is actually brown like he's not a white man he's white coded in most of the things he does in the show uh, including far beyond the stars he's he plays a british guy but the dude's brown like his name is like 30 different names like he's not you know exactly a, you know a, a western white guy um when we meet his parents we have this sense of them struggling in, in london mm-hmm. you know as many people of post-colonial extraction struggle you know at the periphery of london's economy today and and, and do whatever they can to help their children get ahead so there's that there's that kind of anxiety about immigrant parents and the children of immigrants as strivers um that that um scholars like jilda ochoa talk about you know the way that asian american students are are framed that way that sort of occlude um class diversity within those communities and and other kinds of complexity and we just end up with this story about these these hyper studious you know um um asian students and i, I feel like there's a dimension of that you know his supplement is genetic rather than um i don't know the tutoring or, or, or you know Chinese school or something but I, I think that the anxiety that it seems to elicit you know in terms of the, the punishment that the family receives is in some way allegorizing anxiety about immigrant, immigrant child achievement right right and uh, what you said about like um, you know Bashir being queer coded uh, through his genetic modification uh, evokes uh, to me a uh, quote by Bell Hooks 
uh, about queerness. Uh, the quote goes, uh, queer not as being about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, but queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it, and that has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. And being that, you know, genetic modification at this point is still illegal in the Federation, I think there's a powerful analog to be drawn there uh, in, in that definition of queerness, which I think is a very important definition of queerness that people don't really see in a lot of things. I love that. I love that quote from Hooks. Thank you for, for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great, great thinker. Lost him too soon. So... <clears throat> um, uh, follow-up question to this. Uh, given episodes such as Statistical Probabilities, uh, where we meet a more diverse cast of genetic augments, do you think that genetic augmentation is also an analog for neurodivergence? I, um, and this is, this is taking me to the edge of what I know, mm -hmm. and so I would actually love to hear more from you about that. Um, the scholarship on this is just emerging. Um, there is more scholarship coming out of like disability studies. It's starting, you know, I've had some wonderful student papers this year. Um, one of them was about the Big Bang Theory, where, where students are starting to think about um, uh, both neurodivergence, but also um, sort of the race, trying to think intersectionally about representations of neurodivergence, so the racial of ability and disability. So I, I'd love to know what you think about this, because I think it was maybe one of your memes about Bashir that was the first thing to cue me into this, even being an interpreter. Yeah, so when I watched that episode, um, you know, the episode's about uh, basically a... Um, a bunch of other genetically modified people that are basically cordoned off from the rest of society are brought to DS9 in order to do calculations on uh, if the Federation can win the war and how they can win the war. And uh, in this group of people um, is basically my entire internal monologue. You've got like a guy who thinks too much and talks too fast. You've got a slutty woman with no impulse control uh, who is you know, me. Um, but like, when I watch that episode, like I connect with so many characters. And obviously, like B Julian Bashir is a great like every man, a great like uh, gifted kid who didn't achieve exactly what he wanted to achieve. He, he makes a point several times in the series that he uh, sick, uh, finished second in his class at Starfleet. And that's a, you know, that's a sour point for him. Um, but I, I kind of get all of that and uh so i do see specifically in that episode um statistical probabilities a definite connection to neurodivergence but yeah um i love that and i'm actually about to go to a science fiction conference where one of the other panelists is doing work on star trek and and um sort of thinking about ability disability neurodivergence you know so i'm 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 learning more about this from my students and my colleagues and from you so thank you my pleasure. I'm glad we can learn from each other. So uh, next, you discuss the final 10 episode arc of the series, wherein we find Julian Bashir and Miles O'Brien racing to find a cure opposite the Changeling Plague uh, Section 31 is releasing in order to win the Dominion War via biological warfare and war atrocities. Let's call them what they are. Uh, in it, O'Brien reminds Bashir that some things have only political solutions and cannot be solved with pure science. 
What are some of the problems we face today whose resolutions are being attempted by science, but do require purely political solutions? I mean, the, the really obvious one that comes to mind is like climate change, mm -hmm. like we need to tax the oil companies out of existence yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm not saying technology will play no role, but I think there's so much tech fetishism, you know, when it comes to these ideas about geoengineering our way out of the problem, or, or um, you know, afforestation, mm -hmm. like entire regions uninhabitable and displacing lots of people. Um, that, like, that is the, I mean, the first and foremost, the one that, like, like the solutions to this are going to be matters of political will, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think we already know how to construct alternative sources of energy and, and we already know how to consume less or could learn um you know but i, I think that the the emphasis is being displaced on that um, and you know i don't know if there's time really for us to do anything other than tax the fossil fuel companies out yeah, totally agree. Uh, there really isn't time. Like, you know, scientists keep on pushing the goalpost. It was 2020 years ago was the point of no return. They pushed it to 2030, maybe give us a little hope. But uh, I trust the scientists that said 2020. So, yeah, a little, little bleak there. Um, so in the conclusion of your book, you discuss the conclusion of the series. In it, Cisco, in an attempt to defeat Ducat and Kai Wynn, and the Paw Wraiths, uh, martyrs himself and returns to the Celestial Temple. What does this say to you about the role of prophetic blackness and a religious end to opposition, or sorry, to oppression? I think with examples like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you see that it is their, um, their spirituality that, um, you know, sort of leads them to take up a politics that is Black-led, um, but importantly, coalitional, um, bottom-up universalist, mm -hmm. anti-capitalist, and anti-imperialist. Um, and so, I think there is something in, you know, throwing his lot in with Bajor over the Federation and answering to his theological charge rather than his secular Federation military charge that that um, sort of echoes this. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think it's interesting that he his kind of call to realize his affinity with the prophets comes to him in a desert, in a desert pilgrimage on the planet of Tyree. I think there's some, there's some interesting resonance here with like Malcolm X's account of his experiences at Mecca. Mm -hmm. You know, Mecca was really the first time where Malcolm X experienced um, kindness and solidarity from non-black people. Um, and, and so I think it's Islam that for him offers a path to kind of a, a universalist politics that is anti-racist and anti-capitalist. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I think I, I, I sort of felt like that was being gestured to to a degree in, in sort of Cisco's transformation in that final ten episode. Part. Interesting. Uh, do you see any parallels between uh, the demise, or I guess uh, martyrdom, of Cisco and someone like Abraham Lincoln? That's interesting. I, um, you know, I, Cisco is definitely like a messianic figure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think Lincoln is so complicated historically very, because very much, he, yeah. um, you know, is is <laughs> he comes to sort of abolition sort of ambivalently and with some some limits to his his um, understanding of of 
uh, black people as agents in their own history. Mm-hmm. And I also as an agent of settler colonial, you know, um, Matt, he, he's ordering mass executions of Dakota warriors and stuff. And, and right, right. Um, he's a complicated figure, I, but I think Cisco certainly shares with him a, a certain martyrdom. I think we always have to ask, you know, um, and, and I think critics have been asking, you know, um, does does the world, you know, you could ask this about past tense as well. Um, do we need the sacrifice of a black man to to save the world, right? And what does that say about the anti-blackness of the world as we know it? But I I, I think I tend more towards the interpretation that says um, Cisco will be back. Yeah. You know? And he says, uh, he tells Cassidy Yates, I believe, like right before he leaves, I'll be back, which um, <clears throat> I guess um, they kind of added kind of at the very end, uh, just because they didn't want it to be seen as, you know, like a black father abandoning their family, which, you know, uh, good up for good up, you know, big ups for that foresight, because the, I, I could see how that could be interpreted as a very bad decision on the show writers parts. And that came at Brooks's insistence. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, part of what's so interesting about television production history is you really realize what a layered, and I think you all do such a good job. I mean, you showed this in your interview with Carlos Cisco, you know, you've had conversations with Terry Metalis. You know, you're able to show us what a multi-layered thing um, cultural production really is. Um, and r- rather than like just, you know, coming out of the writer's heads, you know, and then and then being implemented. So many people have a hand in this. So much labor, you know, goes into this. But because people assert, you know, um, some direction over what they'd like their labor to be used to do, it opens up possibility that wouldn't have been there before. I mean, Andre Carrington shows that in some of his work on um, uh, Nichelle Nichols as well. Right. So so right from the start, Star Trek has all of these interlocutors, these critical interlocutors, and they're the workers, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't just come from Roddenberry. Rook says the people took it, you know, and so I think it's it's sort of other people taking it and appropriating it and reworking it to their own ends. That That's what produces this sort of beautiful multi-layered product that can be that can be read in ways that um, leave us open to alternative possibilities. Absolutely. So. In this final chapter, you say that some critics have read into DS9's darkness and introspective qualities as indulging in reactionary isolationism. How does that change when viewed through the lens of cultural geography? I think geography has been a um, a really rich site for debate about um, the relationship between politicized identity and anti-capitalist organizing. And um, that's that's happened specifically through debates about the role of place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if capital sort of thrives on um, hitting places against each other, forcing them to compete, manipulating and generating inequalities across space, what does it mean to take up a politics that is place-based? Is that does that have any capacity to address? Um, the scale of global capitalism. And I think some people are very pessimistic about place or about fetishizing place. David Harvey, the great Marxist geographer, is a very notable voice in that camp. But then you have others like Doreen Massey, and I think um, you know Ruth Gilmore is very insistent on this, that all politics has to start from somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, all, There is a sense in which all life is geographical, Gilmore says, and that, that all revolutionary struggle starts out as place-based. 
And, and you know, Massey teaches us that um, it's places. Places are like people in that they have multiple identities and that, that um, it's, you know, they can be, they're not inherently reactionary or inward looking. They have the potential to be outward looking. And so, you know, she gives the example of a lot of solidarity active, activism that was happening in London in the 80s that was, um, you know, coordinating with the Sandinistas and sort of, you know, just as the right wing has its internationalism, you know, sending Oliver North and, you know, mm-hmm. um, funding the Contras, that there is a kind of left internationalism that is place-based, but also outward looking as well. And I, I see that in a lot of Kira's political practice in the show. Um, I, you see that in the very last scene, you know, where they're looking outward mm-hmm. from this or the wormhole. This is not, you know, some sort of um, esoteric contemplation of the, the celestial temple. This is this this is the home of the prophets and the home of Benjamin Sisko. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that's that's led the Bajorans out of you know through a major liberation struggle. There's something there's something profoundly. Um, outward looking about about the way that that the station and Bajor and the temple are all inhabited as places on this ship. Beautiful answer. Um, so you also touch on the idea that global justice movements don't need to strictly adhere to Western secular humanist models, in which you know is the bulk of Star Trek. Um, are there other models you think show promise in the efforts of decolonization and global parity? Um, it, really big question, which I love. Um, I guess the the examples that come to mind, number one is um, the role of, you know, Lakota, like Oseti Sakowin um, uh, worldviews, cosmogenies in the, in the um, no Dakota access pipeline movement, like that idea, mm-hmm. I think it's like water is life you know it like i don't want to reduce that to like religion or spirituality on the the sort of dominant you know um western terms but like that is a that is a cosmogony a worldview that just generating an alternative to extractivism and to and to settler colonial capitalism that actually has the potential to save everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> from from habitat destruction and from you know the pollution of water and fossil fuels um, I think about the poor people's campaign, you know, and, and a lot of the work that like Reverend William Barber and others are undertaking. Um, and, and if you look at the kind of platforms that are being put forward, they are anti-imperialist. They are they are really like um, fundamentally um, making demands on social citizenship that would benefit poor and, and working class people. Um, and then, you know, I think we mentioned already uh, like the, the the classic socialist examples, Eugene Debs or, or Vivian. Um, but I, you know, I think historians are, are shedding a lot of light on this. Um, Anne Pellegrini has a, a great essay called Feeling Secular, where she talks about how um, if you are going to take feminism or queer politics seriously at a global scale, you need to be open to the fact that some people are going to have religious attachments you know like 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 insisting on a secular version of feminism or a secular version of, of queer politics is one way that those movements going to stay white um mm-hmm. people are going to come into the room with with those attachments and and want to make them reconcilable with their with their gender and sexual politics as well right and i think when we frame um spirituality is something besides religion when we see it as not necessarily secular, but a um, a search for community and a search for uh, the quelling of alienization. Like, 
I think at that point we can really start having conversations about what things are really spiritual movements and what aren't. Because, you know, just because you have religion attached to something doesn't make it inherently spiritual. And just because your movement is secular does not make it inherently non-spiritual. Yeah, it might be eliciting all kinds of passionate attachment, um, you know, for good or for ill. And so I think we have to lift up the examples that are doing that, that uh, for good. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this was a great book, and thank you for writing this. This was uh, a wonderful read. It uh, checked all of my nerdy Marxist Star Trek boxes. So I can't recommend this enough to our listeners. And uh, if you're, you know, reading this on YouTube to our readers. Um, Given all of its triumphs, were there any parts that you were dissatisfied with or conversations you wish you gave more space? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, they cut you off at 100,000 words, which if you think about like seven years and 176 episodes and the labor of hundreds of people, you know, and then the interpretive labor of thousands of fans, how do you do all of that justice in 100,000 words? Um, mm -hmm. I would have loved to say more about Sanctuary, which you, you asked about, you mm -hmm. know. Um, I ended up relegating the Mirror Universe to footnotes, which <laughs> I... Like, I do love that DS9 brings back the mirror universe. You know, there's probably more to say about that. I also would have loved to say a little more about taking me out to the hollow suite. Um, I love <laughs> fuck you to the Vulcans in that episode. Mm -hmm. um, the the logicians, right? I think is yeah, the yeah. I, there's plenty of Vulcan characters that I love, but there is a kind of liberal democratic rationalism and smugness that certain incarnations of the Vulcans have that I, um, I liked seeing it taken down a peg, you know? And then um, uh, there's one, I noticed there's one citation by Ruth Gilmore missing now, you know, there were two, there's supposed to be two citations from her, both come out in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, she has an essay called In the Shadow of the, Sha of the Shadow State on the nonprofit industrial complex that I cite that is definitely worth looking up. Um, and I wish I had cited, um, there's this, there's this trans, um, media study scholar, I, Kale Kyle Keegan, who's at Carleton university in Ottawa, who's written some stuff on, um, you know, the, the potential value of bad as well as good trans representations that one of my, one of my students, um, who wrote about trans representation in Star Trek this past semester, um, wrote a brilliant paper that dialogued with that. And I, I wish I, I, I was sort of loosely aware of Keegan, but I, I wish I had known about that work and, and engaged it sooner because it's very smart. Um, um, and I think it complicates our ideas about the demands for representation in, this, in a way that like Grevin and, you know, Jose Munoz also do. So. Yeah, because, I mean, although we have, you know, great queer evil representation in Garak, we actually have a very specifically queer uh, character in the first season of Strange New Worlds, uh, Captain Angel, who is played by a, a, a trans woman, uh, Jesse James Keitel, but goes by uh, they, them pronouns, which I thought was incredibly brave of them because uh, to support trans rights fully, we also need to support trans wrongs. So uh, we, we love to see, you know, any, any diversity in the cast, but especially you know, representation for, I, I don't want just glowy, you know, good queer people on TV. We need our villains too. There's gay, there's evil, evil gay people. Look at Peter Thiel. 
Like they exist. They're all over the place. And we need to, you know, give them space too, uh, in order to not lionize a sexuality, you know? Yeah, it's like only good representation is dehumanizing. I Absolutely. Think Lisa Ray, I think, did such important work in insecure, mm-hmm. you know, tipping away at, at respectability politics in a certain sense. There's there's so many good examples I think that are that are moving us away from I mean, Rami, you know, I, you, you, you start out loving Rami, that show on Hulu. And then, the, you know, as the show goes on, you see that he's also <laughs> fucked up and you can't just idealize him. You know, I, I think that's so important. Absolutely. So uh, how long, out of curiosity, did it take you to write this book? Oh, gosh. Um, it's hard to say because... Or it's, it's deceptive because, you know, I rewatched it a bunch of times. And so I feel like it was already in my head, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so when I sat down to write it in 2020, it was like the last five months or so of 2020. It just like, you know, um, but then I spent 2021 getting lots of feedback on it. So my my institution was kind enough to pay for what's called a manuscript workshop. So mm-hmm. in addition to the peer reviewers that the press sends it to, you ask people who, you know, um, maybe wouldn't be peer reviewers or wouldn't have time, you know. Um, and so this was really important for me because it meant that I, I got like a much more diverse uh, cast of interlocutors than I would if I'd just gone through peer review. Peer review is often very, very white. Mm-hmm. Um, who a lot of the senior scholars are, you know, um, because like not only do we need affirmative action, we need affirmative action yesterday, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I really wrote it, I think, in the spirit of 2020. And I think of the first half of 2020, you know, I was thinking about Bernie, I was thinking about the George Floyd uprising, you know. Um, I got a lot of feedback on it in 2021. I returned it to the press, I think, in January of 2022 with revisions. I, I wanted it to come out after I had tenure because I talk about Palestine and I didn't want to take any risk. So I, it, w- it could have come out faster. Mm-hmm. But um, the copy editors returned it to me then in the fall of 2022. And I kind of wrapped up copy editing and proofs in February of this year. So so that's the reason the conclusion doesn't address you know, I, I feel like so much has changed. You know, there was that, that um, Lower Decks episode that revisited Deep Space Nine. A lot right. of that was kind of like, it was like past the time when the press would let me uh, make any changes. So, yeah. Well, nice. Um, so uh, what are you working on next? Oh, okay. So I have two more articles on Star Trek in me, and then I'm going to move on to other things. Okay. Um, one is on Harry Kim. Mm-hmm. Um just because he made me gay. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I think that he he's an interesting, his reception is really interesting um, in terms of um, both his sexualization and his desexualization. Absolutely. Like, reality is so sen- uh, such a core theme in Asian American studies because it's so central to how Asian Americans have been racialized. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to kind of think about that, him on that People magazine cover, you know, but anyway, right. go, go Oh, yeah. So, so most people don't know about Harry Kim, but uh, he was actually on the chopping block originally. They were going to take him out of the series instead of Kess. But then he appeared on, I think, People Magazine as, like, one of the uh, top 100 sexiest men, and they decided uh, Kess is going to go, which is an interesting decision on their part. Um, I mean, I can see why it's a business decision, but at the same time, woof. Like, just everything that went into that decision, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the person who had to make that decision. Oh, man. So um, 
uh, you said that's that's one of your articles. What was the other one? The other one is on Counterpoint, um, uh, the the Voyager episode, um, which is another refugee episode, which is where okay. I might bring sanctuary. It's the one where they're smuggling refugees and um, they're under investigation from the the Devor Imperium, which is very, I think, xenophobic. And um, Janeway's kind of flirting with the with the Devor officer who's who's pretending to defect. Um, but they're they're flirting over Janeway's classical music database. Hmm. And so there's just there's so many interesting rabbit holes to go down about the the politics of classical music. Like, um, you know, I mean, they go back and forth over Tchaikovsky and Mahler, Tchaikovsky. Hmm you know someone who was queer who was you know his music was often denounced on very kind of orientalist russophobic terms you know and then Mahler um you know someone who is forced to convert from Judaism to Catholicism in order to take his post as conductor of the the Vienna opera um you know so so, so there's like there's historical layer upon layer when it comes to immigration asylum anti-semitism and kind of the politics of music and the mm-hmm uses of classical music in that in that episode so i don't know where that one's going yet but i'm, yeah. I'm very interesting and yeah we, we talk about kind of uh broadly that on on this program quite often how uh basically all of the existing media in Star Trek, uh, like the existing legacy media is Western media. You know, you got like your Gilbert and Sullivan, you got your classical music, uh, jazz music is the closest thing you really even get to like non-Western existing music. And that's just because it's a black art form. Um, but you see it played primarily by, you know, Harry Kim, not black, uh, Riker, not black, you know, data, not black. Um, yeah, so it's 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 interesting how westernized, uh, you know, a supposedly very universalist show became, or maybe yeah. o- always was. Really, it's no, yeah, it's 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 sort of textbook Star Trek Eurocentrism. What intrigues me about um, about uh, the Mahler example in particular, and you know, Mahler Mahler's work inspired the original theme song. You know, Neil Lerner, some other musicologists have sort of shown how Alexander Courage drew directly on Mahler's first symphony. Um, and you know, Rick Rick Berman told Dennis McCarthy on TNG, you know, I don't want anything too hot. I don't want anything too ethnic. I want it to sound like you know Mahler's slow movements. But then, but then you look at Mahler's reception history in the 19th century. And it's they're they're calling him like sensuous and decadent. Like they're basically saying he's too horny and too to it. Hell so yeah, we the, love the it. things that Berman is trying to get away from are also found in in Mahler. You know, in sort of the racialization and sexual conception issue. So I'm trying to open up some of those ironies and and move us away from this very fetishistic, whitewashed view of classical music. So I think that's kind of where the the paper is going. Interesting. Um, and then I'm going to move on to other things, I think. Then I think I, I have other stuff I want to write about. Um, uh, I, I'm interested in the Yimbies, you know, and mm-hmm. they're kind of clamoring for density because sometimes they do it on very free market terms. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know. I'm in, And then I have some uh, some questions about different historical figures in gay and socialist activism that I'd like to follow up on. But I've got to get these two Star Trek articles uh, out from um, underneath first. Nice. We, we look forward to them, and maybe we'll have you back to talk about those as well. 
So um, in the end of the book, uh, you say that uh, you're giving the profits of this book to uh, three organizations. Do you want to talk about those organizations real quick and why you're giving to them? Sure. So I, I chose these because I thought they spoke to different aspects of the political priorities that, that came out of the show and that were articulated in the book. The first one is the Black Alliance for Peace, which does a lot of amazing internationalist work, a lot of work as a kind of watchdog organization around U.S. Um, intervention in, in Africa. They're, 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 they're really good monitors of AFRICOM mm-hmm. and uh, of Haiti, but their their remit is is um, it, it, it's centrally on sort of peoples of the African diaspora as they interface with U.S. foreign policy. But they are also just generally very astute critical commentators on U.S. empire, U.S. policy in Afghanistan, Ukraine, you name it. The second is Jewish Voice for Peace, which is um, a, a progressive coalitional organization of Jews and non-Jews that is working for solidarity with Palestinians. Um, and um, you know, like Judith Butler is involved with them. Uh, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who's one of the blurbers for the book, is is a brilliant black feminist Jewish physicist who's involved with them. Um, uh, uh, Wallace Shawn is, I think, on their on their board. Oh, you yeah. know, um, and then the last one is called K Town for All, which is a um, which is a um, uh, nonprofit organization, um, sort of mutual aid uh, organization. That does advocacy for unhoused people in Koreatown in Los Angeles, um, and you know has has really been an important force in um, holding local politicians accountable for um, you know actually supporting unhoused people for extending eviction moratoria, um, and 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 um, for sort of holding police holding police accountable in, in their sort of treatments of unhoused people. Um, they've also produced some of the best literature actually evaluating which candidates for office are, are doing something constructive about the homelessness instead of just demonizing unhoused people um, or propping up uh, shelters that are, are highly comfortable. Um, so, you know, I will give my royalties to those three organizations. Um, if you buy the book, uh, authors don't get much in royalties for academic books either, so you can also just give them money. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I have a I have a couple of events coming up which I'm happy to talk about as oh, well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Do your pluggables for sure. So um, I've got events on or related to the book coming up in Chicago, Toronto, Milwaukee, St. Paul, Minnesota, Baltimore, and um, and then early next year we'll do Southern California. Um, so if you just go to davidksites.com, that's davidksites.com, you can check those out. Um, uh, you already mentioned Will Burroughs, the cover artist who is also worth supporting in addition to your wonderful merch. Um, so willburrowsart.com or um, uh, soychuck.com, yes? Yeah, indeed. Thank you so much. Oh, it's actually uh, willburrows.art, I believe. Oh, okay. I think. I, I believe. I'm not 100% sure. Willburrowsart.com? Uh, well, Willburrowsart.com. Yeah. Never mind. I'm sorry. I'm so wrong. Willburrowsart.com. Yes, you got it. All right. Well, that just about does it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, once again, it is A Different Trek, Radical Geographies of Deep Space Nine by David K. Seitz, uh, released on um, University of Nebraska Press. You can also get it on Amazon, but uh, get it on University of Nebraska Press's website instead. For You, you should know. If you're listening to this, you should know better. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have anything else for us? No, I'm just, I think the work you do, the political education you do, um, and the levity and insight with which you do it is so important. And I'm I'm so grateful that, that the show exists as a platform. And I'm, I'm happy to be a Patreon um, subscriber and to keep listening. And thank, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. And if uh, you would like to be a Patreon supporter, uh, we're available at patreon.com slash dumbidiotbs. That's patreon.com slash dumbidiotbs. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this was wonderful. And um, I don't know, do you do you care when it's released? I am totally flexible. Yeah. Cool. It should uh, probably be out tomorrow then. <laughs> whatever whatever is works best for you and whatever you have time i know that the editing is can be quite laborious uh no i've actually set it up to where i don't have to edit this at all <laughs> i i do all of the editing like right here on the soundboard while we're talking so no yeah i uh yeah i, I i'm a pro uh yeah uh thank you so much i think we'll leave it here um yeah you have a great evening. Uh, thanks for writing the book. And if you're listening, go pick it up. A Different Trek, Radical Geographies of Deep Space Nine by David K. Seitz on University of Nebraska Press. Y'all have a good one. Oh, I guess we, uh, we, got, a, we got an ending theme here. You want to say uh, hang dong and chalker with me in just a minute? Sure. Cool. Uh, when I point to you, go ahead and say it. Well, thanks for joining us, Soyagers. It's time for us to warp away. Be well, travel safe, and go pick up and read A Different Trek. Hang dong and shocker. Soy, 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 soy,